People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Good morning and welcome to this week's episode of Greenwashed with me and Don. And thank you so much for joining us this morning. Hi, Don. Hey, how things are Again, another week's gone quickly for us. Uh, never seems to be a dull moment. I know. Time flies quickly when you're having fun. <laughs> having fun, all right. What's been uh, making your days more fun than they would otherwise would be? <laughs> Council meetings? Well, the Otago Weather Updates page. Oh. Facebook, Tom. Yeah, it's I, Yep. I just caught my attention today. And... Just looking over the last two, three days over this weekend just gone, their posts are really interesting. I look at the pictures of, you know, the far south on their Facebook page. They're all in red. All in bright red and orange uh, color schemes. And they're really hamming it up. Daytime highs, south southern New Zealand. So this was, uh, mind you, on Friday and Saturday that the southern region shows most of the places are five to seven degrees above a normal September average. It is, yeah, it is a bit early in the season, isn't it, for global boiling or have they caught on yet? And oh. yet it is it is coolish right now. Well, it's interesting. They seem to be copycat. I mean, the Northern Hemisphere news covered this uh, a few months ago, how uh, there was plenty of this extreme colouring in of weather maps to show this global boiling uh and it's interesting it it's come to the otago uh weather out, outfit um they do a good job by the way but gee this this uh what would you call it indoctrination for for effect uh through mm. using colors that uh clearly define burning it's a bit over the top a bit over the top and uh, yeah i'm can't um, clearly show it today, but uh, down in the bottom right of my screen often is a little thermometer that says, uh, for instance, let's say it's September the 1st, it'll have near record if it's within one or two degrees of the hottest of the 1st of September, it'll have this little thermometer saying so. And that's a new thing as well. So look, 
there's a lot of uh, gaming or influencing going on here, and we know that it's all um, for a reason. And perhaps that reason is about money and influencing and politics and a whole mm. lot of things. Mm. But nothing every unusual. Single, every single post from Otago Weather Updates over this last weekend that came to my attention ended with a fire symbol, a fire emoji, yep. whatever the yep. uh, young people yeah. call it today. It's and and they wonder why young children have got climate anxiety. These people that are doing this stuff need to wake up and stop this nonsense because it is nonsense. Uh, those of us that have been following weather patterns for years know this is nonsense. Don't talk about it about climate change. Uh, as we know that uh, any time we talk about climate change in this show, it's only about legislation. It's nothing to do with uh, the climate. It's it's more about legislation and political influencing and crony capitalism. That's what it's about. But we've got a lot of people right down to our school teachers who believe that this is... Um, this is it. This is it. This is Armageddon. <laughs> Armageddon. Yeah. The apocalypse. Yeah. Sorry, the, I, I used the wrong word. It's the apocalypse. Now, The Apocalypse Now was a movie that I never saw, but anyway, I remember it being talked about. But what else? Look, we could talk about the weather all day. That's a, that's a traditional thing for farmers, but we know that, um, you know, it just is what it is. That's what it is. And we used to call some of these things spring or summer, but right now uh, we just call them global boiling. As yeah. you, see, you mentioned crony capitalism, and that's what came to my mind over the last week when I saw this um, Newsflash, that National, if it comes to power, is going to have 10,000 EV chargers dotted across the country. God, they're not listening to us, are they? They're not no, listening no, to us. No. So you you can't trust free market economics to deliver, so you have crony capitalism. Absolutely you do. It's an absolute scandal. I think we've said on the show before, in fact, I know we've said on it, that I don't think uh, the fuel stations would have ever been subsidised uh, way back, say, 1920, 1930, 1940. I don't think there would have been any fossil fuel subsidies, uh, you know, distribution subsidies. But here we have uh, an attempt to do this just transition into electrification, and we're going to have uh, a government set up networks or assist in get setting up networks using your money I find it just obscene. Uh, they're not the electric vehicles aren't paying road user charges yet. Haven't yes. from day one. They're supposedly going to be paying road user charges next year. Uh, but wouldn't surprise me even if National get into power. That's continued that subsidy. Uh, yes. So I don't know. I I just find this uh, an appalling overreach by the National Party. It's again we talk about uh, trying to jump a hurdle higher than their competitors and. You know, it's 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 politics, but I just wish they would stop playing with taxpayers' money so uh, so wastefully, or so, so simply. Yep. So there's this meme that's been doing the rounds, Don. You know, and I, I can't help but look at it. It's got uh, Christopher Luxon in a green shirt, and uh, it says, "Vote blue, get green." 100% commitment to zero carbon, firm believer in man-made anthropogenic climate change, wants more EVs, wants more wind farms, wants more solar farms, 
deeply committed to the 2030 UN targets. Proudest achievement at Air New Zealand was electrification of the car fleet. Auckland flooding, he believed, was caused by climate change. Once fewer cars, more public transport, and calls carbon dioxide dirty. So woke uh, national, would blue get green? I, some of this is a bit, uh, you know, I think just put up there to complete the meme. But a vast majority of this, you can attribute it to Luxon. I, it seems like it. Uh, and look, for anyone to call CO2 dirty, um, they they need to get uh, get with the program. CO2 is the fertilizer of life. Uh, yeah, and and the other issues, other headlines in there. It's just um, it is just virtue signaling stuff. And you know, I I detect more and more people are sick of this stuff. They just want real people to be leading the country. Uh, if they want leadership at all, they don't need to have these um, people telling them what's good for them all the time. I, you know, having been to Australia recently, I just um, have to say. Australia ain't doing this stuff. The Australians are moving on and moving right on through. Even as crazy as the politicians in Canberra are on this stuff, Australian people are just moving on. Mm. So hopefully New Zealanders will wake up. We don't have too far to move, actually, going by the IMF ratings of us Ah. being in 159th place in terms of the GDP forecast over the next 12 months, beaten only by Equatorial Guinea. We are moving on, aren't we, Don? Just in the wrong direction. We are moving. It's not great. It's not great. And wasn't it uh, interesting? Another uh, page that people may wish to study and have a read of was from Alex Holland, who has written uh, and it's published on the um, Bassett, Brash and Hyde um, tip sheet today or blog. Uh, yeah, the, the, it's about about a five-minute read of the the labour failings of the last few years, and and he hasn't finished there. Now, even if he's not 100% accurate, it makes shocking, shocking reading. So I just recommend people go and read that and then have a reality check of themselves to think, well, do they like this or don't they? Because, uh, you know, I I don't understand how anyone can be proud of their last three years' uh, governance in this country. I just don't. Yeah. And talking of Luxon and Labour government, we should not forget the fact that when Jacinda Ardern, you know, she appointed uh, this business advisory council of sorts, this board of sorts, she appointed Christopher Luxon on it as a business, her business advisory council chairman in 2019. Mm. Well, it, it's interesting. Uh, the companies in New Zealand that seem to be the most woke, if we use that term, uh, are, are definitely SOEs and people that have been from SOEs like uh, Meridian Contact uh, and Air New Zealand. In, in New Zealand, is it an SOE? Oh, I'm not sure, but it's, it's a public company anyway. Yeah. Um, with 51% shares held by the government on our behalf. But these people are all playing in the same sand, but that you and I have talked about for months. They've, their game is not as it seems. It's uh, definitely, uh, in my opinion, based on the globalist agenda that we talk about. And so that's why I can't cut these people any slack until I see them 
um, basically saying they support uh, national sovereignty. And and the, and we're not seeing that from any of them. Not one of the players in this government, uh, sorry, in this major players in this election are talking about it. Not one. Maybe Winston, uh, maybe, maybe New Zealand First is starting to. We shall see, you know. We, we shall, shall see. see. We shall see which way things yeah. go. Can't take sides. I mean, I just wish, um, I'm just wishing New Zealand there were people uh, as strong-willed and as talented as the Southland Boys High Rugby First 15 who won <laughs> the national title. Uh, hard to believe, uh, hard to believe for all the years it's been played um, that Southland Boys hadn't really got to that top level and to beat the big Auckland side uh, you know, who generally have bigger players than the Southland boys. Um, it was a stunning achievement, and I know that uh, Southland's going to give them a, a warm welcome, I gather, this Wednesday. So well done, boys. Really proud of them. Good yep. Southland boys, that's what I say. Probably good rural stock, I'd say. <laughs> right, Don. In, in other news, another greenwashing news, we had Kiwi scientists speak last week of the fact that what if your favorite fruit was grown in a laboratory, yeah. not in a tree or wine? And that's what scientists in Canterbury are exploring. Mm. They want, they say it's not going to be replacing, you know, your normal food production, which is fruit trees, orchards, of which our uh, end of the country, Don, has more than its fair share, but trying to grow fruit in a petri dish to have it year round sustainable you tell me and i i don't even know when you know the sun soil and uh, rain turned unsustainable nothing natural seems to be secret anymore it's funny look i'm not a mad scientist um perhaps you would call them but look i as long as um they don't think they can then become more virtuous and they're saving the planet. I couldn't care less if there's a bit of mad science around and they do stuff for a bit and then we just get over it. Uh, but it's not how it is, is it? Uh, we're talking about um, the impossible burgers and, and you know, the plant-based diets and all the rest of it. We see the, the world, creep. We see the creep. Um, so I don't know where it's all going to um, sort of, when, when society's going to say, no, nah, don't like that. I mean, again, having been to Australia recently um, in a popular spot, uh, I go past the vegan um, coffee shop in the morning, or, you know, the vegan restaurant, and another one is um, the organic one, and they are empty, and the other bars are chocker with people. The other restaurants for breakfast are full of people, so... I don't know who it is that's supporting these other places because they look like they're doing a starve. Mm -hmm. And I, again, I couldn't care less if people are vegan, to be honest. Couldn't care less if they want to eat organic fruit and, and, and food. Couldn't care less. Just don't tell us how to live our lives. And don't take subsidies. Mm. Don't avail of all of this to get your ESG and uh, sustainability reporting good. Right. And don't uh, expect legislation to protect you. Because that's what annoys me the most, as mm. we as we constantly talk about. Uh, I mean, we are we already have uh, we have producers like Edmonds now saying that uh, they can't afford to keep pastry on the shelves, and here we are. There's probably another revenue stream for this uh, Canterbury outfit that's growing fruit in a petri dish. Come on, what 
what should be a priority or am I going mad? Don't, don't answer that. I probably am. Don't answer that. But yeah. Look, I, we, we talk about it often. The evolution of ideas has got man to where it is to, today, where we are today. We shouldn't resist the evolution of good ideas. Um, there'll be bad ideas on the way. So look, we, we, we should wake up every day with a positive uh, attitude and a spring in our step. But these people, they find their niche and all of a sudden they become so damn virtuous that they're the only people that have got the answers to everything. That's the people that annoy me, the people that think they've got the answers to everything when uh, clearly there is um, 8 billion people in the world that might have a different view uh, in, in terms of a percentage of, of them anyway. So look, it's it's nothing new here, but it, it's intriguing how society moves on. I mean, I see there's a, a feedback talking about um, the mRNA stuff uh, and whether that could evolve into uh, being in, the, in our food chains and things. Well, again, hopefully the regulators um, keep on top of all this stuff. Uh, the regulators? Do we have any time? Well, we've got to have to start trusting them um, more than we currently do because they've let us down badly in recent years. But... Um, we are going to have to have strong regulations to bring back trust into the population because there's a whole bunch of us now with a whole bunch of mistrust over and distrust over our officialdom. Mm. But, it is the last three years I've certainly distrust I had in authority, but I had a low bar. I didn't have much trust in authority anyways to begin with you know right. the three p's police press politician don't don't trust them and i i'd like to give at this point you know we seem to think farming is hard done by and and it is but uh, pay pay a thought to the south african farmers especially the white farmers there Paul Brennan on Breakfast last week had done uh, an interview that I was listening to, I believe, last Wednesday, driving into town for work. And it was it was chilling. This is a, a white farmer in Africa, South Africa, speaking about what is going on. And I couldn't believe my ears, but we've seen nothing like this, Dawn, in the New Zealand media. You have Sky News Australia covering it. You have BBC even covering it. But New Zealand media seems to think there's nothing to see there in South Africa. And yet, according to, depending on which estimates you look, something between 250 to 400 people have been tortured and murdered. White people, they call it reverse racism now. And uh, it's it's surreal that this is happening. All for race. And this is the way, I mean, New Zealand was the country, I wasn't here then, Don, but you would remember when New Zealand stood up against apartheid in the early 80s, wasn't it then? Yes, yeah, it absolutely was. And um, it is uh, it is reverse racism, um, but it's having seen some of those um, YouTube clips about uh, the activist uh, people basically taking saying to uh, take out a farmer, it's obscene. And it's it's not being stopped. Um, we I hope to be able to interview a South African farmer in the next few weeks uh, to try and get a handle on this. But I do recall Zimbabwe having similar issues um, not so long ago either, because uh, I did have a connection in Zimbabwe years ago. So 
what the hell is going on? And if New Zealanders think that um, uh, the separatism that's developing in our uh, political paddock, as I, I keep saying, is mm. going to be good for us, uh, we're dreaming. It is uh, It is an, a, a new apartheid, and Australia is about to head down. Well, perhaps they're not. Perhaps uh, there's a common sense starting to develop uh, over, over there. But uh, we can't have this... Um, this, uh, what is it? An attempt to take back time. It yeah. just doesn't make any sense. You know, the, it's like people uh, of our generation are being told they need to pay for the damages of the of, of our forebears. Well, it's just not going to happen. We're not going to take that. But the point is, number one, it is straight out murders are happening, and uh, if, to to your point on, none of those who was supposedly perpetrated and who were the victims are alive today. Hmm. No one is there for an exact recollection, but yet, as I've said before, it helps push the government agendas because what is the ultimate nightmare for a government? A united people. That has to be destroyed. So for someone who was wondering and is listening, and wondering what uh, interview I was talking about, Paul Brennan spoke to Renee Wanderwehr on the 6th of February. The replay is up, and I think it's worth listening and also having a look on YouTube, BBC, Sky News Australia, and seeing. I found it very chilling to see that particular training exercise, which seemed very real. Uh, an uh, Israeli specialist teaching people self-defense with what looked like real guns and, you know, women being held from behind their necks and all of that. And yet that is a life. Mm. Imagine going to bed, New Zealand, thinking you're not safe. It is, it is unbelievable what people are living through. And we hear nothing of that in this country, which at one time stood up against apartheid. We have now had a health system that has decided everyone is racist and we need to have separate healthcare systems yep. in a supposed pandemic. We have money for that. While we are at 159th out of 160 countries in terms of projected GDP growth, beaten only by Equatorial Guinea. Priorities are. Priorities, all right. Uh, it's it's all a bit weird at the moment. Um, did I think you may have That's made a mistake. Mis- yeah, I think you may have made a mistake on the uh, the Brennan article um, interview was on the sixth of September. I oh, think, yep. yeah, yeah, not yeah, not, not February, not February. Yeah, so just just for this, listeners uh, to to look back at that, there's been a lot of great interviews in the last fortnight, last week, last fortnight. So look, uh, implore our listeners to not only listen to us as much as we love you having having you on, listening to us. Um, Listen to uh, the other presenters on RCR because uh, it's probably the only place you're going to get the unfiltered um, uh, opinions of many other people. So, and talking of other hosts, uh, I'm going to pick up on uh, Peter's uh, ponderings, Peter's ponderings yeah. on yeah. Uh, the fact that the media made such a hue and cry about uh, one of Fletcher Building's uh, building trio laying the foundations of what's supposed to be a four-bedroom house being all women. And the article ended with saying we need to end the stigma around women being in the trades. Is there a stigma, Don? Well, I wouldn't have thought so. Um, or is there something wrong with the profession being male-dominated? I mean, physical 
when you say men and women are equal, are we talking about, you know, can can I go and beat the shit out of someone who's 200 pounds? Is that what it is? Or is it about, you know, cerebral equality? What is it about? Well, I would have thought it's about equal opportunity and, and the ability to do the same, same work, uh, mm-hmm. just to the same quality and all the rest of it. I don't think there's any anything to see here, to be honest. But yeah. if the media want to um, to to milk it, um, it does seem like one of those sort of nice to to read stories until you sort of analyze what it achieves. What are they trying to achieve? And uh, I don't know. I was talking to you uh, earlier about why why is this all even a thing, and. You know, I, I think back 40 or 50 years and there is no argument. Most mums stayed home. They were single parent working, sorry, out of a husband and wife working family. There was only one person working. Mm. And now it's different. People are, both parents are working. Well, they may be single parent uh, households. God knows what it is. There's so many different options. <laughs> but um, now uh, the consumer society demands you know, two, two incomes into a, into a family. Anyway, th- this whole story, I know I'm di- digressing. The whole story was about the trades. I, I have no problem with anybody being a plumber, an electrician, a builder, a concrete layer, whatever. Um, just don't expect special privilege. And, you know, the whole song and dance being made of it, as uh, Pete said in his ponderings, would they make the same uh, uh, song and dance if, it yep. was a primary school full of yeah. only male teachers. Uh, would they? Well, I doubt it. I mean, it would just—it would just—it is nonsensical that they've. I beat. actually think we will reach, you know, something that would be a, an admirable point would be when no one bats an eyelid, where it's you know just continues whatever has to happen. People have you know freedom of choice, and they just do, and no one raises an eyebrow at whatever you do. So I will guarantee, Jaspreet, if you go into this document and then start doing some research, the old DEI will be deep in here. Donkey deep, John. Donkey deep. So there you go. I'll guarantee it is. Yeah. So I I actually went. You you are beginning to know me too well. (laughs) Beginning to know me just too well. So went to Fletcher Building and under their sustainability reports, there is this whole thing about inclusion, diversity, gender affirmation leave and transitioning at work, uh, you know, transitioning at work guidelines. Now, transitioning at work guidelines and gender affirmation leave. Why is this an employer's role? Why is this in sustainability reporting? Is that why is there, where does this carry through to? I had spoken about NZ Steel a few weeks ago, and I mentioned that, you know, they were speaking about a 40-40-20 ratio, 40% males, 40% females, and the remaining 20%, they say gender diverse or whosoever else. Now, they're actually working towards this, whereas I would think a steel maker would be working towards world-class products. Nothing else matters. That's your niche. That's what you do. And but maybe it pays dividends down. NZ Steel got a hundred and forty million dollar taxpayer funded decarbonization subsidy. So maybe is that what Fletcher's aiming for? I don't know. Oh I do know these corporates don't do anything out of the goodness of their hearts or 
hundred percent. That's what will be at the basis of it. There will be um, getting that getting that box tick, the ESG, the um, uh, what's it, the uh, yeah. corporate index, the in the corporate indexing uh, number, and then and here we've got another thing called the CDP, which was uh, carbon disclosure something or other. Um, Project, it, yeah. It just doesn't stop this stuff, and you know that there is your money as a taxpayer is embedded in this stuff because you're right. The crony capitalists go after politicians who are gutless enough to spill this money into their pockets. That's the problem. Yep. But uh, we're, we're not seeing this. Well, are we seeing a slowdown in this stuff? Overseas reports say we are seeing a slowdown in this ESG uh, sort of stuff and um, and companies are I think it's Vivek Ramasamy has set up a, uh, his company is um, sort of standing against this and he's raised a fair few or a few billion dollars uh, to to grow his business so uh, with yep. different with with a different view around ESGs uh, and DEI and the like so have I got that right yep so listen Don is talking about this guy Indian origin it looks pretty slick and you know very well put together in his arguments and all who's running for the american presidency american presidential elections so so we we shall see where this heads to but uh, yeah the whole song and dance our media makes about things that should be absolute non issues they should all be right now talking about what a pathetic forecast we have for the next 12 months you know in terms yeah. of where we are going in our economy the amount of people now struggling to put food on the table. We have web pages which are right now thriving and have a whole lot of uh, activity like frugal and cheap living New Zealand and whatnot, all these pages. This is what we've come to as a country. It's unbelievable. And, you know, in the rural papers, we've got uh, knowledge that break-even for most dairy farmers is 751 payout. And, um, yeah, the the... Are we going to get a 751? No, no, it's, no, no. It's not looking yeah, likely. Yes, yeah, dairy farmers are not going to break even. So, so look, there's going to be whoever takes the treasury benches in October 14. I'd, I, well, we'll know this coming week uh, what the um, the books look like. Uh, but there's always surprises after that. I would have thought that come October 14 and the weeks after that we'll have even more surprises about the fiscal hole this country is about to plunge into mm. or if it's not already in it <laughs> yeah so so yeah i would also like to make a mention right now and oh before we forget our number to text is 2057 and our email is inbox at the rate reality radio before don and i lead into our guests for this week i'd uh, it, I think it bears a mention that where some of the politicians or prime ministers who were held up as, you know, absolute media darlings over the last three years are now heading into. So we have Jacinda Ardern, who's left politics, and she's moved to Prince William's Earthshot Prize outfit, it calls itself a charity, gives out millions of dollars in... Uh, funding to people with, you know, innovative climates, world-saving uh, projects. And we have Sana Martin, 
she was the Finnish prime minister. I saw quite a few photo ops between Jacinda and her, and she's left politics, and she is now heading to join Tony Blair's Institute, his NGO, which is again working on climate and other global issues. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to um, hard to believe how these people can find their way, but they they've made their influence. Uh, and their position well known. They have. I'm not sure in the in this other lady's place whether she's destroyed the economy, but um, oh yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah. okay. So yeah, and so now we've got to pick up the bits of these people's for after these people. So yeah, I I don't think we deserved this. Well, I know we didn't. Uh, it's hard to be nice. It's hard to be just. It's hard to be um, kind. Uh, but that's what we were told we have to be. <laughs> we have uh, to be kind and be blind to just and, carry on. Yeah. So the and, institute that she's joining is Tony Blair's Institute for Global yeah. Change, right now focused on AI, technology and climate and all of that, and global mergers and collaborations. <laughs> There's that word again that I detest. You collaborate with the enemy. Yep. Yeah. So, look, we haven't even done um, feedback really this week, but um, I, I do know that we have to look into uh, the ETS and how it works a whole lot more for for people. They've, one person has certainly asked that uh, we have someone on about how the follow where the money is and how it, who it goes to and how it's played. It's quite convoluted. Uh, it almost needs a full program on someone better than me to explain it. Maybe better than you, because it's quite awkward, isn't it? It is. It is. Now, ETS, our emissions trading scheme, I'll I'll try to explain as much as I can. And just like Dawn, I have to admit ignorance and at times purposeful ignorance, because I just know instinctively this is about legislative privilege. This is about a Ponzi scheme. This is about money for your mates. This is not about saving the planet. And that is why my utter derision about, you know, spending too much of time on this. But ETS, our emission trading scheme. In 2008, we agreed, New Zealand, that we will reduce our emissions slowly, progressively till 2050, going down to net zero from the baseline year of 1990. We are going to reduce our emissions and ETS is how we do it. Our carbon units are essentially the money in this. They are the unit that is traded in the ETS scheme. Now, the government's third emission, so the New Zealand government, it has four auctions every year, once every quarter, and it puts up units, allocates units that are supposed to be purchased. So far this year, the three auctions over the last three quarters have failed. What we have seen, what the media reports, is that as a result of this, no carbon units, because this the latest auction just happened last week, last Wednesday, no carbon units were sold in a third consecutive emission trading scheme auction because bidders did not clear the minimum carbon unit price set and the volume settings as well. So close to 
if you look at it so far this year, that's $900 million that has not hit the government coffers. Mm. Right? And the price of carbon has been rising. They have also meddled even more than they could meddle in a free market economy. They have gone and meddled to the extent that each time this auction was supposed to happen, there is a minimum floor price below which the units will not be sold. And there's an upper trigger price called the containment price. That is to stop the market from overheating. If the units reach that price, if the carbon units reach that price, the government releases more units to stop you know, the price going any higher. Now, three years ago, three, in fact, probably more, about four to five years ago, pre-COVID times, it was decided what all this is going to cost, what is going to be our minimum floor price, what is going to be our you know ceiling price, and so on. But have they kept those promises? No, they haven't. The prices have moved massively from what was predicted. And this year, they have rejigged the settings. So the trigger price to stop you know, the auction, the price of carbon going any higher, that was about $75 per carbon unit, is now around $173, more than doubled. The base, the ceiling price that they wanted for carbon has gone up from in the mid-30s to close to $70. This is going to be reflected in your next auction, which is going to be in December. Where's this going to head, on? Well... <clears throat> And I'm no guru on this. I find it really awkward. Uh, but it seems to me that uh, the December auction will fail as well. You know, this is a government auction. And that's purposefully uh, required, you know, desired by government because yeah. that will, at the end of the year, those units go out of the system. Yep. So there's less units available for auctions in the future. So this is a um, a declining amount of uh, government-established units in the marketplace. So and, uh, the declining so that, number of units, what declining does that do? industrial activity. There we head off to what, you know, we have uh, these prophets like Mike Joy and others, the ones who had degrowth out here. Over. Gosh, they must be salivating. Well, uh, the, there's two ways. The people that will, will be salivating with a shorted market, uh, generally that pushes the price up. Mm. So uh, there's going to be potentially windfall profits for speculators if this market continues. I mean, you know my view, um, Jaspreet. I want these unprincipled people to fall away and lose their shirt because I have no time for this concept. It is a um, legislated market. And a, but on the other hand, people that aren't principled don't have um, scruples, in my opinion, because I I'm, like to think that I'm clean and straight up. Um, they will, they've been given an opportunity, so they're going to milk it as best they can for as long as they can. And, uh, yeah, as you've always said, follow the money. So I would suggest there will be some very good gains made unless this whole thing falls over based on the state of the New Zealand economy that can't sustain this sort of nonsense.
will that accelerate on when that those prices go up next year will that accelerate the conversion of uh, sheep and beef properties to or even dairy farms because we are not breaking even imagine working for a whole year in new zealand with nothing to show for it out in all weathers with nothing to show for it uh will that accelerate new zealand being you know turning from new zealand to new finland go see yeah. the blighted pine tree yeah look there's been many years where farmers have made nothing um and it's not no fun and i don't wish that upon any farmer any time uh but guess what um most people are now so distant from what used to be bread and butter which is farming that a lot of people actually won't care about that uh, yeah, i've grown fruit to the rescue yeah yeah all that so look the cts stuff is really really awkward um and i what i read the article on interest.co.nz earlier in the year june 15 i think it was and there was a, a, a an article and professor keith woodward woodford did a lot of answering questions on that blog mm. and he seemed to know what he was talking about and because he was responding about that's not right or that is right to to people but in the end i just came to this conclusion again yes there are people that want to understand it and want to think it's a useful tool mm. none of them are saying why are we doing this isn't it just a fool's errand we're on none of them are saying that and i thought hmm for professor to be uh talking about it as if yes it's a, it's in play so we've got to make the best of it mm. it's sort of greats with me really yeah you know my view i just um i just can't stand this and knowing that agriculture um uh, and farming animals is so much under the pump under climate change policy uh because no one will uh, even interrogate the science as we know it today it just it all this is galling to me and i always said i will never plant another tree as long as there is an emissions trading scheme and i never have i wish more men had your scruples and spined on that's that's mm. all i can say but you you mentioned this whole thing is awkward and it is awkward i or i don't feel like even you know giving it any sort of relevance with trying to give a primer on ets but you know what is really awkward it is that song sung by catherine lining of motu research on the 10th anniversary of ets she sang it a few years ago she's an american who was one of uh, the core engineers of the new zealand emissions trading scheme uh, at the motu research institute and i think you know as don and i had to a break i will let you listen to that opera i i will really i might just play that instead of a regular music interlude today don because nothing brings home the sheer insanity of this as much as that you know enduring youtube clip <laughs> but i think we should uh introduce our guest for today sure yeah look uh, we've got jerry ekoff uh coming he's um he's a um bit of a hard case he lives near alexandra former act mp um and general good new zealand solid farmer uh former regional councillor for otago uh he's just got a great style about him he writes well he writes for on the muriel newman's breaking news um blogs 
uh, and he's a regular uh, writer to the ODT, the Otago Daily Times. When he's got an opinion, he's not short of opinions. No, and so what, what we have is Jerry Eckhoff um, unshackled after the break. Right. And after that, Jill Booth and I will bring up the rear with the United Nations SDGs. But for now, I unfortunately, no, I should be honest, rather gleefully, I'm going to leave you with this ode to the ETS from our premier research institute, Motu. Have a listen. And when we'll come back, we will have a reality check, a bit of sanity with Jerry Eckhoff. Thank you so much for joining Don and me this morning. This is the Greenwash team. Just breathe. Don and Jill Booth and Jerry Eckhoff right after this break. Hello, my name is Catherine Lining, and today I'm going to talk with you about the history of the New Zealand Emissions Trading Scheme. In 2008, New Zealand became the first country in the world to implement an economy-wide emissions trading scheme. But where we are today is not where we thought we would be. Here's the story of what happened. There was a time when the weather was kind, when the winds were soft and the summers inviting. There was a time when agreements were signed, when we wanted to change. And the change was exciting. There was a time, but it all went wrong. With cross-party support, our ETS can take us to a net zero emission future, but we need to look beyond the barricade. We schemed a scheme in times gone by, when hopes were high and the climate worth saving. The
Happy 10th birthday to the New Zealand Emissions Trading Scheme. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwash on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Greenwashed on RCR with Jaspreet and Don. It's great to have your company and remember to keep that feedback coming in on 2057 or inbox at realitycheck.radio. It's not often you uh, have guests that um, you know quite well, uh, but you've sort of never thought to have them on until now. And this, I'll, I'll do a bit of an intro in a minute, but um, I first met this gentleman probably 1995, he was a very eloquent speaker at a meeting, and I was pretty meek and mild and probably sat in the back row. Then in 2003, he um, went around New Zealand in a yellow bus, <laughs> and it had F-A-R-T on it. That's right. And, of course, uh, I linked into that pretty well, and um, I thank the gentleman we're about to meet uh, for doing the major, the heavy lifting in that era. He was an ACT MP from 1999 uh, to 2005. He's been an ORC and Otago Regional Council councillor. Uh, he's got some big opinions on property rights. And I'm um, pleased to have today on our show, Jerry Eckhoff from Alexandra, formerly from Mount Benjamin Station in uh, Roxburgh, uh, formerly from Balfour in Northern Southland, and formerly a schoolboy in Dunedin. So, yeah, you've kept it. You've kept it local, anyway, Jerry. Um, but it's a pleasure to have you on our sh uh, show, and uh, we've got a lot to cover, from meat well, to climate to uh, property rights to yeah. You know, I, I and, and I know you're an avid writer for um, the BreakingViews.co.nz website. Um, so, even covering one of those articles will take an hour. But let's let, let's launch into it. What drives Jerry Eckhoff? Uh, I'm not sure whether it's genetics, Don, what it is. Uh, I know members of my family don't, don't engage in such matters. But um, I guess one thing, uh, just, just to reflect for a moment, uh, I was at a meeting many years ago, and I spoke with an editor uh, of the ODT, of the Otago Daily Times, maybe 30-odd years ago, and I apologized basically for writing a couple of letters to the paper. And he said, no, 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 you must do this. He said, we, we have so few rural people that bother. Uh, you know, they, they, why they feel a bit embarrassed about it or something of that nature. He said, you must keep on writing because we really do need, in the interest of balance, we do need to hear from rural people. And... Uh, and I thought about that. I thought, oh, well, um, if if they publish it, and he did say he can, they can tidy it up uh, <laughs> time to time. And uh, so I thought, well, um, if if other people are going to engage in this, that's fine. I, I'm pretty happy uh, to to set back. But by and large, people don't, especially rural people, don't. Um, and uh, so I continued to do it. And I guess I've had a, a few years of going around the traps and I've learned a bit. I understand which way is up. Um, and uh, I tend to think that uh, gauging by public opinion, uh, and in, in, a, in a funny way, it comes back to me from my wife because she was a nurse for 50 years. 
and they would look at her badge at the hospital uh, or something, and they said, oh. um, as one uh, fellow said, is Jerry your father? <laughs> and I was mortified at that, of course. But um, she was getting very positive comments from, from patients, both in the hospital and in private practice. Uh, so I thought, well, if you can and people like what you hear, why not keep on doing it? Uh, and um, so I, I don't, uh, I've had no formal training or anything like that as a journalist or as a writing, but I, I write as I see things. Yeah. And uh, if it works, well, that's cool. Well, I've had no formal training either, and um, so that makes two of us. But I think you're quite a lot more eloquent than me. And plus, you have uh, you have um, uh, been in the parliament, and you've done um, overseas courses like uh, oh, you've done sorry Kellogg uh, courses and things yeah. like that. So yeah. you have you, life's all about continual education, isn't it? The life's experiences, well, without mm. question. Indeed, you, you mentioned the Kellogg course that uh, I was very surprised that they took me on. That was a grouping of about 20-odd uh, rural people, women, men, women. Uh, I was one of the oldest ones, I guess, but that was about 95. And um, we had a most marvellous tutor, um, Alistair MacArthur, who was a, a, the doctor of calculus, of all things. And uh, an Englishman uh, by birth and was um, repatriated, if that's the right word, to New Zealand uh, during the war to get away from the Blitz. Uh, he would be one of the finest people I've ever met. Uh, his knowledge was impeccable, but he just had a manner with him that you thought, well, look, if I could get even a fraction of uh, Alistair rubbing off on me, that would be nice. Uh, but anyway, he, he was a huge influence in my, my life uh, at that time and gave me, I guess, the confidence to stand yeah. up at a meeting or stand up in the parliament and say the things that I have been saying over the years. And often as not, you suffer uh, um, the slings and arrows of, um, of ridicule. Um, from journalists as well as from fellow uh, or the opposition uh, people in parliament but um you you if you're passionate and you're sure about your facts and your knowledge on these matters you've got to stand up and do it um too many things uh, you know the woke uh, aspect of life today means you're not allowed to say things that are basically just common sense and things oh. that work you know, oh, so. yeah, 100%. There's influences in, in all our lives, and um, it's mm. good that you have yours. I, I no doubt have mine, and Jaspreet clearly has uh, hers. And uh, But it's interesting. You've just used the word woke, and we talked earlier about your uh, first uh, experiences with the ODT. And you'd have to wonder today, you've seen off a few editors, I'd say, uh, Jerry, Yes. Um, in your time, and you have to wonder about the editorial editors of our local newspapers and our national sort of newspapers and our media. Um, and that word woke, uh, yeah, I have family in America, and my brother says, We hate that word over here. Well, sorry, it's all around us. We need to use it and we need to get rid of it, uh, out of, out of the parlance because it's eating us alive. Would you agree with that? 
Oh, I think this is one of the most troubling aspects of, of, our, of our current um, way of life, if you like. Um, I, I trace it back to the money that uh, Jacinda Ardern threw at the media uh, to ensure that only certain things should be heard. We we don't want criticism, either of, of perhaps um, direct criticism of government or, or indeed uh the, the the policies that the government were following um especially within maoridom of uh, we see the three waters the co-governance uh, aspects of life um you know i accept as i always have that change is inevitable within our uh, lives but uh, i just love that american expression called we the people we the people should be asked about these things, just as I said at a meeting, uh, ACT meeting yesterday, that uh, we the people need to be asked if our country's name is to remain as New Zealand, as I think it should, or whether we are uh, quite happy to allow it to change to this North Island um, interpretation called Aotearoa. So, yeah. Yeah, and I, I completely agree, Jerry. It doesn't matter what the name is. Ultimately, everyone, all the five million have had a chance to go vote on it. And then, well, you call it Timbuktu. Well, I'll, I'll agree. I'm one person out of those five million. But the point is, it was never asked. It's been slowly snuck in. And now it's become very regular parlance at everything. And then you spoke about Maridam. And I'm going to quote one of uh, a document uh, on Manafenwa mm. from one of the councils here, because over the last couple of weeks, Don and I have covered the issue of uh, further, you know, degradation of private property rights under the name of SASM's sites yeah. and areas of significance to Maori. Mm. So a draft district plan of one of the councils in South Island says, to ask how significant a specific site or area is for Nahitahu is a redundant and meaningless question. All landscapes and elements of natural environment are significant, given that within a Naitahu worldview, all landscapes hold stories, histories, and whakapapa links to Tiatu Maori deities. And for this reason, to say or to exclude certain properties, they said, is, is pointless. We're just going to say pretty much everything in that district has a cultural value until proven otherwise. This is what we've come to in this country. So where does where do private property rights come into this? And this whole cultural war that they are beginning, I, I look back and I think with the sinking sense of deja vu, because I'm I'm an import from India, that what I thought I'd left behind has followed me here. We had politicians there, but unlike ethnicity, it was religion that was used, that was weaponized. I for me, this all seems oh so familiar. Again, well, the, I, I, you know, hearing what you've just said, Jasper, it is is uh, more than troubling uh, that um, you know, this little country of ours called New Zealand, uh, we had, I think, some of the best, if not the very best, race relations we could. The intermarriage, for example, um, nobody worried whether you were married to a Maori or what. It was, it was that wonderful speech of. Um, uh, of um, oh, the the um, African um, American uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, mm. 
who said that my four little children should not be judged uh, by the colour of their skin, but by the content of their character. What a, And that has come down from probably the 50s, was it? Uh, and it's just so true. But today, they've tossed Martin Luther King's wonderful comment aside, uh, well, the government has, and said, no, no, the colour of your skin, your ethnicity, is more important than the content of your character. Um, look, I, I guess I haven't known that many and or had close friends as as Mar from Maradim. They just weren't around in Roxburgh or in Belfort, I guess. But uh, those that I did know, you didn't even consider the fact that they were of different ethnicities. When they stepped up on the golf course with you and you had around the golf, they were just great people. You know, wonderful people to talk with and and uh, share your frustrations or whatever. Uh, but now, because of the um, uh, the government pouring money into the media, basically buying their silence, and that's what it is. There's no other way of describing it. Um, even our ODT, I believe, got seven hundred and something thousand. The ODT, uh, Target Daily Times got seven hundred seventy odd thousand from um, this government fund, and the government expects a bit quite a bit back and uh, i think they're buying the silence and it is if it was only restricted to the media it wouldn't be that bad it is percolating right down to schools universities you, this this sort of differentiation i think is taught if i can cite an example of my own ch children who are you know the offspring of both indian uh, parents my daughter in a uh, supermarket once ran up to me and said, I need to show you my twin mom. Well, I don't know what twin she had, but I went along and there was this other girl, um, white as can be, who was wearing the same identical Elsa princess dress. That's it. Children don't see color until they're taught oh. to see color. And then you had the ministry offering certain schools and kindergartens extra money for specifically picking up resources that were tailored to a particular ethnicity. And I, this is all stuff I've witnessed. And mm. it sends a shudder down my spine what we're doing to our children. But to come back to what you were talking about, where will private property rights go once we start doing this? We already have farmers in certain districts, Timuru, who are uh, facing the consequences of this sort of mapping and uh, are going, being told that you know they might not be able to access certain parts of their own property because cultural cultural heritage. Well, I, I guess, um, you know, I've been accused in the past of being a bit single issue uh, on, on the, the private property rights things, but it, it, it's the foundation of our civilization. It's the foundation of our democracy. Um, we, we can't just dismiss the private property rights. It gives us the power, supposedly, gives us the power to hold our house, our, our land, against the crown. It used to be against the king, who could just waltz in and, and take it if he needed it. But um, that was the basis of, of our property right and, and the start where the uh, average person, you know, it doesn't matter who they are or where they're from, the average person through hard work and, and uh, good choices, uh, all of those sort of things could start to put a few bob together, create a little bit of wealth for themselves and for their family, and grow that. 
Now, what what is happening today with the the destruction, and I think that's where we're heading for, is the introduction of either, you can call it uh, socialism, you can call it communism, I don't care. Uh, Communism starts with socialism anyway. But um, nowhere in the world has this system worked. So what makes anybody think it's going to work in New Zealand? It can't, and it doesn't. So, um, you know, I just uh, I just despair sometimes that people, uh, the, the why that was a great unwashed, if you like, if I can put it like that, don't tend to understand just how important it is, this creep uh, or this, this taking by stealth, this appropriation, we call it. Well, appropriation is just another word for theft, isn't it? No. So and and it's happening bit by bit, and I I'm stunned to hear uh, just the uh, the commentary on from Jaming McFadden just recently, um, who talked about this uh, these areas of significance to Maori. Um, it is does does a does a, a landscape mean more to a, a person of of Maori ethnicity? than it does to somebody such as me who's got Scottish and Dutch ancestry. Um, you know, my, my my former home, my former farm in Belfer has a lot of attachment uh, as far as I'm concerned. You know, I could drive past there, the Waimea stream, lovely little stream down there, the, the kids caught their first fish. Of course that's important. But you don't, I, I, I can, can never envisage a situation where you could just waltz in and say to them, now the current owner, now look here, fellow, I used to own this land and now it's of cultural significance to me and I want the right to be able to restrict you on what you are doing or think you can do with this land because of my, my historical attachment. It is an appalling basis for which uh, our society can grow and develop. Uh, it just can't work. So uh, that's why I think people like yourselves, Don and Jasper, are doing God's work, frankly, uh, if I can introduce a, 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 that, that comment. Um, it, it, it's it, so important that we talk about these things. Absolutely it is. It's like, uh, yeah, I have no desire to go back to the Isle of Skye and say, in that godforsaken place, I want to have some part of it uh, because of my family history in mm. Bernersdale. I just don't want it. I've seen it, seen enough on a picture to say, I don't want to be there. My place near Invercargill suits yeah. me just fine. And I um, I love the vista that I've got and I, I protect it with my, um, with my effort. But Gary, this isn't just a recent thing. This expropriation of property through um, st- uh, regulatory forces and through privilege, actually, uh, misguided privilege through regulation, started when? Uh, yeah, the RMA is bad enough, but the genesis of this was even pre uh, pre the RMA, I think, and it's my view. Um, when I first saw uh, this tension, and, and, and especially the building up to the Waitangi Tribunal, and uh, then there's a victimhood thing and the fiscal envelope, then the uh, RMA, I may have my timeline wrong. Uh, this, and now in recent years, sorry, I'm going to go fast forward to the last few years, where the word partnership has come into the, the lexicon of the treaty. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all been divisive for as long as I've had an interest in this stuff. And yet there's only a small percentage of the population that actually care. They don't seem to be understanding what's happening right in front of their nose. Now, so can we go right back to 
your first understanding of this? It was pre the uh, RMA, I gather. Well, um, yeah, I mean, we shifted to Roxburgh in 1984, um, and then a, a fellow by the name of Roger Douglas took all my subsidies away. So it changed the, the, the game plan for me. But the worst aspect of that, by shifting to a property that I wanted to develop, uh, was the introduction of the this PNA scheme, Protected Natural Area Scheme, that came out of the uh, Otago University, who had the year of government. And so somebody in Wellington probably thought, well, this is a good idea. You know, identify the best of what remains, as they called it. Um, and uh, I think most of the farming community thought, well, that's not a problem because our, our right to own and develop and whatever our properties is not under threat. Uh, little did we know that it became a massive threat. And we, we try, did try to warn uh, as many that would listen in those days. But, um, and I think we did hold the line for a while. Uh, but then it just went quiet, and now it's come back with a vengeance. And, and Jamie McFadden and, and others uh, have picked up the cudgels on this one and are doing their damnedest. Uh, we've got an election coming up. You know, farmers should be going along and demanding from these political parties that they respect the property rights of each individual. And uh, I, I just remember a meeting I was at where I asked, I can't recall the name of the Director General of, of Conservation, but I asked him if he agreed with property rights. And he said, uh, well, yes, we do, but it's just that we haven't decided what property rights we're prepared to give you. And, and I, 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 it's not very often I'm gobsmacked, but that, that was one occasion. And... Uh, I thought, my God, these guys don't even understand the the the, the, the basics of uh, of how a civilized society works. You cannot just walk in and take just because it's somebody else's. Uh, and um, you know, they don't never want to buy it. They worked out very quickly that uh, it, it's better just to restrict you through rules and regulations. Uh, rather than having to buy it ourselves, and then we'd have to do work, we'd have to fence it, we'd have to pest control, predator control, uh, we're going to spray the weeds and the pests. No, we'll get the, the local farmer to do that, but we'll, do, we'll make sure that he has to come to us before he's allowed to do anything, uh, even close to this area, because they wanted to put a buffer zone around it as well, which makes it... I mean, when I think about going back all those years, it was just so incredibly bad. But nothing's changed, Don. Nothing's really changed. Well, and you have to think uh, that the statement that long march through the institution uh, institutions has uh, has been in play for a long time, as we know, um, from Gramsci's time and even before that, the intention to educate these people that are in position and that we've let them get into positions of influence. Uh, we've let them because those of us that are actually working um, and trying to generate income and, and better ourselves uh, have been slow, have been paying um, their salaries and we've let it happen uh, year on year. And it's, uh, of course, the swamp is now very deep. Uh, with with uh, these people that have been educated to move your effort to their pocket, so no no surprise there. We're we're guilty. We've been really weak, and and as you've just sort of intimated, we've got an election coming up. 
And I don't see any political party willing to tackle this. It's all too hard. It's too entrenched. The long march is won. The progressives, as they call them, I call them the regressives, they've got the air of all our politicians. Not one in 120 currently, do I sense, has any handle on this. I I agree agree entirely. Uh, it, It is... It, it is even so much easier today through this medium that we're discussing. Right? We're looking at each other um, with the Zoom things, but with uh, with uh, YouTube, for example, uh, anybody that would listen, please just YouTube a man by the name of Tom Sowell. Mm. He is an African American. Uh, to to uh, I guess I shouldn't have even mentioned that in some respects. But he talks the truth, he talks data, he talks reality. And he comes up with some of these most wonderful little quotes. And I, I've got one. Uh, he says here that the, sad, the saddest signs, one of the saddest signs of our times is that we now demonize those who produce. We subsidize those who refuse to produce. And we canonize those who complain. Uh, ain't that the truth, brothers Gosh. and sisters? <laughs> that is, yeah. I mean, that, that just puts it in a nutshell for me that, um, you know, people who complain that uh, from time to time the river's not quite as good as they should be um, or, um, you know, a farmer's cultivated a block of land that got a bit close to a gully or something, um, they, they constantly complain and they get all the airtime. Not the fact that this person produces milk or, or butter or cheese or uh, lamb, beef, whatever it is, uh, cereal crops, of course. Uh, and it's interesting, uh, too, I think, that I was uh, talking just recently to a chap uh, not, not long back from Australia, and he said the media over there are full of this thing called food security. Um Australia is pretty lucky in terms of the the grain they produce uh, for a start. But what is happening around the world is is very troubling. And uh, those that care to think about these things are very concerned about food security. So what do we do over here? We're inclined to restrict people's ability uh, wherever possible to produce uh, and, and create some wealth that goes towards our hospitals and our schools and our welfare and uh, all the social uh, requirements that um, we all need from time to time, uh, we're just making it more and more difficult. So, you know. A so- social requirements are cycleways, of course, and uh, in your area, you know, on the coastal belt, um, you've just spent, uh, as part of your rates, Jerry, and your taxes, they've uh, just spent $50 million. Uh, on a cycle away from St. Leonard's out to Port Chalmers and, and Dunedin City is hospital, you know, the downtown hospital. Has it got any piles in the ground yet after, um, what, 10 years of cogitation? Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's extraordinary, isn't it? But um, I, I, I guess you could have had another department uh, added on to the hospital when they finally do get it built um, or more hospital beds, Um there's one thing is sure that uh, the demand for health services is going to increase. It's not going to decrease. So to build something that is just adequate or barely adequate today is the most short-sighted uh, thing we could possibly do. But the reason for it, of course, is that we'd rather build cycleways 
and get a vote from our friends in the environment or the cyclist lobby group uh, who who vote for the mayor or vote for the councillor who says, yes, we'll spend your money, um, not your money, uh, other people's money on on uh, creating these um, uh, these little fashionable uh, jaunts that um, should the mood take them, they want to pop out to Port Chalmers on their bike and back again, probably using an EV too. So, uh, you know, I, I just... <laughs> The, the Am I e-bike. getting too old? For the, um, no, 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 no. You're, sometimes. No, no, look, you're, you're saying the same things as, as um, well-meaning New Zealanders uh, want to say, but just don't because they're all too busy. The people that are really busy can't um, yeah. can't do the stuff that you and I and Jasper are doing. And um, Jasper is busier than both of us put together, I have to say, uh, probably by a factor of 10, Jerry. Um, yes. but, but, but she's younger, of course. Uh the thing is, that cycleway is funded by taxpayers and ratepayers. No cyclist is going to pay a dime for it directly. Yeah. They've just talked, yeah. if this current crop get back into Parliament, they're talking about increasing uh, road user charges and tax, uh, fuel taxes. And uh, where will all that go? I mean, let's put it back into roading and infrastructure that actually makes commerce happen uh, rather than... Um, the nice to have stuff uh, that's that that you could have if you had a thriving economy, but I think you'd agree our economy is far from thriving. We spent uh, what we've got, uh, ooh, I don't know, one hundred and fifty-five billion of um, of core crown debt, and we've we've splurged our printed money into the economy, created inflation, and now we're ranked one fifty-nine out of uh, out of the um, countries in this. Um, survey, we're, we're aligned with Equatorial Guinea in terms of our economy by the IMF. I mean, that's where we are, people. It's uh, and, and you cannot lord any uh, governance that allows that to happen. But it's happened in three years. Well, look, having spent nine years uh, on regional council mm. and six years in Wellington, um, one of the things that stunned me completely was the stupidity of people that are in positions of real authority. They don't know anything. Um, I, I thought, God, how do I get on up here? You know, I don't really know that much by comparison with all these other people, uh, whether it's the regional council or whether it's uh, in parliament. But I was stunned, frankly, at how little they understood about the basics of life. Uh, and in order to just, uh, as you've been saying, uh, don't, uh, they would far rather uh, build a cycleway than build a storage dam is it, that would enable people to create uh, whatever they want to create uh, with with water. Um, you know, the, the, these things are not difficult. They're, they're pretty uh, straightforward concepts that... Um, uh, in order to grow, you need you need to develop, and and it takes a bit of money. So you've got to have that fundamental uh, creation there. But you know, going just thinking about the, the fact that our country is over thirty. Oh, look, it must be thirty five percent now of our land mass is controlled by the Department of Conservation. We cannot mine that land now. If we could find. I don't know, lithium or or whatever mineral that could increase the wealth of our country 
and build more hospitals and better hospitals and more schools and better schools and pay our teachers as they should be. Uh, good teachers paid exceptionally well, like they do in the uh, Scandinavian countries. Uh, but we can't because we are increasingly poor. And we're putting all our money and resources into, uh, well, people who choose not to work. And um, my, my, I quoted Tom Sowell before, and he has come up with some fascinating data to show that the, the worst thing that has ever happened to a country uh, is the introduction of social welfare. Because, uh, and he quotes, for example, there were more um, white people out of work in the 30s than there were black people. Um, <clears throat> so then the governments decided they were, would just introduce uh, welfare. And uh, frankly, they've, um, they've unleashed a, a plague upon civilization uh, where you don't have to work for a living, just show the government that you have a need, and uh, they will say, well, we're very sharing and caring. But the most, surely the, the, the most important thing to do is to encourage people to get a really good education, get themselves a good job, um, and, and, you know, grow your knowledge so that you can be paid a bit more uh, and that you became a, become a major contributor to our society. Um, but we uh, tend to be going in the opposite direction, and anybody that challenges that, like the Taxpayers' Union, uh, like Groundswell, um, uh, Don Brash is another, they, they vilify, they demonise people like that. And... Um, you know, the, the opportunities do exist in New Zealand, and I just mentioned the, the land mass. We, we're not even allowed to investigate to see what is under the soil. I mean, I, I, I can recall a helicopter uh, study that the regional council did, uh, which I thought was a very good thing to determine what our uh, water resources were like, our subterranean water resources were like, our artesian water. And... Uh, they carried this helicopter carried what I call a cruise missile that was picking up all the data underneath the, uh, the soil. Uh, and uh, when they crossed an area not far from where I'm sitting right now, an area known as the Serpentine, the old guys knew that there was more gold there than they could point a stick at. Uh, and apparently the, the needle on this, um, on this uh, piece of technology just went off the scale when it flew over the set of quite a large area. Now, it's all dock controlled. They <laughs> cannot touch it. Or we could pay off our national debt if, if, we, if we started mining again in some of these areas. And I'm not necessarily talking about coal, but other minerals that, that uh, like gold and um, some of these very, very valuable, uh, I don't know, we've got any copper. That's an extremely valuable mineral today too. So there's opportunities for us if we choose to accept the challenge of getting out there and doing it. But, you know, we see people now getting more attention that, that cement their hands to a, a road in the middle of Wellington to stop the traffic. Uh, and they will get more attention from government that somebody pr that, that presents a really good plan for our country. And, you know, we, we talk about that for, for just for a second, the plan for our country. Uh, one of the great things that Dunedin Hospital did, uh, sorry, Dunedin University did, 
50 years ago, we started up a study on the well-being of children. And they followed mm -hmm. these children from birth virtually right through to 50-something years of age now. And they've identified where the problems are the children that are going to develop the problems. And, uh, and I thought, wouldn't that be a wonderful basis to start on our, um, perhaps a cross-party consensus as to how we should care for our young and develop a, a really good policy around that so we haven't got problems with these ram raiders and kids doing all sorts of things when they get a bit of age on them. Um, and, you know, we, it's very frustrating knowing that we've got all this information here. Indeed, um, the criminology, criminology study is regarded as the finest in the world. It's the most often quoted study uh, of um, how you uh, identify the problems in, in, in later life, all starting from children uh, and their upbringing. And dare I say it, even the old Plunkett system that you and I probably, Don, were brought up under, where the Plunkett nurse came and helped the mother with a bit of advice from time to time. Uh, and um, uh, a lot of mothers, uh, Jasper, your... your um, My children it, went have had the support be, from Plunkett. Uh, yeah. uh, I, I hesitate to even talk about these things, but um, it, it seems to me that we have answers in this country, and they're just—they're not even sitting below the surface; they're sitting on the surface. We are not picking up these answers to create the the wealth, um, and it's not going to happen overnight, of course not. But it will happen if we if we have people with the courage. And I think you've used that expression a few times, Don, in, in my country, in my hearing. Um, if people, you've got to have courage to stand up and say, this is what we must do. Mm. And, and yes, you do suffer the, the, uh, the slings and arrows, as I put it, the, um, the opprobrium of, of uh, people who are just happy with the status quo. But um, that is why I think this election coming up what is it in a few short weeks, is possibly the most important election in my lifetime anyway. If if Labour get back in with the Greens uh, and uh, to party Maori, um, I, I per personally would have to, I haven't talked to anybody in the family about this, but I would really think about shifting out of New Zealand to... to um, to part of Australia somewhere, which is not that brilliant either, but it's a damn sight worse and a damn sight more realistic than uh, what we've got in this country at the moment. So uh, there's unintended consequences that are really starting to bite in this country. Can I play the devil's advocate here, Jerry, and say that these consequences are not unintended? At times, you know, I've I've looked at stuff that, and this is this is a very cynical worldview that I I have begun to hold now, but uh, we have consultants, tens of thousands of them more employed. We spend over a billion dollars on you know reports from these big five firms and so on, mm. and I can can't help but conclude that they are not stupid, the policymakers, and I have I say this often. And I say there's a time when one needs to stop looking for a reason in treason because so much is going wrong that one has to conclude that what we see unfolding in front of us was exactly 
what was planned all along. And, and I know that's, that's a big statement. That's really cynical of me. But I, I just have stopped giving people the benefit of doubt anymore. The answers are there to see. There are people speaking. But as you said, we seem to canonize the ones that, you know, complain the most. Don mentioned the long march through the institutions. And since we've been talking about the RMA and the conservation estate and DOC, there's, there's this name that often comes up, Simon Upton. Now, in October 2020, he's, he's currently employed as in the second term as the parliamentary commissioner for the environment. So Simon mm. Upton completed his first term from 2017 to 22 and mm. got reappointed. So on 20th of October, he gave the RMLA Salmon Lecture 2020 to the Association of Resource Management Practitioners in Auckland Club. And he began by saying that 30 years ago, in my capacity as a Minister of Environment, I invited Tony Randerson to lead a review of the RMA bill, the Resource Management Act bill, and I went on to oversee its enactment. This lecture comments on the current debate about the future of the Resource Management Act 1991 and following a new review also by Tony Randerson. The same people, 30 years later, Simon Upton, Tony Randerson, of course, broken in between by his short stint at the OECD and as the commission, as the he chaired the Commission for Sustainable Development uh, under the ages of the United Nations from 1998 to 99. So these are the same people going along again. How long do we continue just giving these people the benefit of doubt and pretending they are working in the best interests of the country? Well, I was in Parliament, actually, Jasper, when I heard Simon Upton, mm. his, his uh, valedictory speech or his resignation speech, apologise for the RMA. He actually apologised for it because he was one of the uh, the movers and shakers at the time. He literally apologised for it. <laughs> but uh, nothing ever happened. But, you know, just to take up on your earlier points, um, I, I see what is happening with this uh, World Economic Forum stuff, this um, Klaus Schwab telling us all that we will own nothing into the future, but we will be happy. <laughs> really, Klaus? Uh, <clears throat> I, I would love to have the opportunity to, to get close to you, mate, once or twice and, and, and get a few hard truths ran down your throat. Uh, it's the academics that have no payback uh, or uh, they're not ch challenged, or there's no problem if they're wrong, uh, and they are too often. These guys uh, need to be paid according to how often they're right, not how often they're wrong. And the, the, the Klaus Schwabs of this world, the United Nations, and the way we're heading uh, with this World Economic Forum, that seems to have gained some significant momentum. Um, you know, what little say we have in our own country will be lost even even uh, more quickly with these people. So, Well, well, Jerry, good good you brought that up because it's one of our topics that we, we broach quite often um, because we've got 120 MPs <clears throat> who say there's nothing to see here. And, of course, uh, uh, you will own nothing. The first part of that phrase is becoming more and more obvious. The uh, the, the attempt to take property, um, expropriate property, uncompensated, is part of the game. And we've been facing this for 
in my well, my entire adult life when I analyze it. Um, but there's nothing to see here, according to 120 MPs. In fact, even the Right of Centre Party Act, and I'd say they're now centrist at best, um, is is denying that there's any influence in New Zealand from the WEF or from uh, the unelected people that attend United Nations fora and try to, uh, well, it's all through our statutes, it's all through our local uh, government um, uh, documents, that the United Nations edicts are all there, but they deny that we've got these influences in New Zealand. Why is that, do you think? I mean, it's quite debilitating uh, to argue this, but yeah, we've got to lance the boil. Oh, absolutely. Um, and yeah, it doesn't seem to matter when you turn on the radio or turn on, uh, unless it's your radio, of course, <laughs> you turn on the um, the news or whatever, and we hear people talking about the need for equality, greater equality. Uh, well, um, none of us would disagree that uh, equality of opportunity is essential. Um, doesn't matter what school you go to. And I can remember Roger Douglas talking years ago, and he said, look, if you're going to buy a, a bit of Kentucky Fried Chicken from a, from the uh, Remuera um, takeaway place or one on the, the wrong side of the tracks, the quality is exactly the same. That's the standard. So it doesn't matter where you're from, your, your McDonald's hamburger in the wrong, you know, in a poor socioeconomic area is still a good hamburger. Uh, and so is the one on the right side of the tracks. So equality uh, uh, of um, uh, uh, of opportunity is is so essential, but equality of outcome now seems to be um, what what everybody is saying. Uh, it must it must be uh, you know the wealthier people, the people that made as I said earlier, made all the right decisions and made the right investments and and done some sensible things with their lives and work bloody hard, uh, we're going to penalise them. Hmm. Really? Is that going to help our, our, our quality? Uh, it, we, we will neither end up with equality, nor will we end up with freedom if we introduce anything close to this equality of outcome, which effectively is socialism or communism. Ask the people in Venezuela how it's worked. They can't even, they boil stones to make soup over there. Uh, a week's wages won't buy them breakfast. And this is one of the most rich, oil-rich countries in the world. Mm. Um, ask the people in Russia under that awful Putin individual, uh, they still got outside lose, you know? <laughs> uh, which we would think would be ridiculous because the Russians have put uh, people into space and, and done some uh, pretty high tech stuff, but they they don't look after their people. They don't. There's no equality of outcome there at all, unless you're part of the elite. And this is where, um, I, in fact, I came across a piece of a, a bit of scribbling of mine just recently. Uh, uh, I actually googled Plato's conceit, which is all about um, Plato thought. We can't have farmers and ordinary people in positions of authority, people that might know something about the subject. No, 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 no. We must have people like uh, intellectuals running the country. And Plato's, this, this was Plato's conceit, and he is demonstrably wrong about that. 
But he was the he was the the, the lecturer of Aristotle and Socrates and these kinds of people. Um, and his conceit was that ordinary people, we the people, should have no say in these matters. Um, and, and, and this is where I fear that we are heading with, a, with a, again, going back to our loss of property rights. Uh, we're being disenfranchised uh, at government level. We're being disenfranchised at local government level. Uh, people are being appointed who happen to be of Maori descent, but people are being appointed to council uh, because they have these um, these higher um, aesthetic uh, under this understanding of of the environment than ordinary old farmers like you and I. Um, I mean, it's it, it's uh, the, the lessons of history are not being learned. Now, now we don't see the divide and rule as it's been happening. I commented on a Ministry for Environment's Facebook post the other day. They had put up this post saying they are inviting Waikato Waipa and, Fanui, and Wanganui River EV to apply for their River EV internship program. And the blurb there went on to say, we currently have River EV internship opportunities in Maori Climate Action Team and the Freshwater Rights and Interest Team to deliver mahi to identify the rights that EV Hapu and Maori have in freshwater. So I just wrote a comment. I said, uh, how does the ministry define Maori climate action and how is it different from ethically neutral climate action, please? And again, managing freshwater via an ethnicity lens. I would love an explanation. So the ministry, to their credit, have replied to my Facebook post. Kia ora, just breathe. Thanks for reaching out. All reports we have identified that climate change disproportionately affects Maori in unique and serious ways. The government is working in partnership with Tangata Fenua to enable Maori-led climate action that build Maori climate resilience through a uniquely Maori climate response. The ministry are committed to reflecting the Crown Maori relationship under the Treaty Environmental Policy. You can learn more there, Maturanga Maori and, and the ministry Namahi. <laughs> what uh, was that? What what was that? Seriously, we are a country of five million. I often tell Don that population is less than the population of New Delhi. We have so many do-gooding organizations in the country. I mean, even if I look at the size of parliament, and this is not to say the Indian parliament is very well managed, but we have about 400 parliamentarians there representing 1.6 billion people. We have 120 <laughs> representing 5 million here. On top of it, we have regional governments, and then we have all these arrangements yeah. We have tied ourselves in red tape like no place I have ever seen. And people, we have reached the stage in this country where I can say things sober that my mates, white or whatever color they are, can't say two drinks down because we have made people feel ashamed, embarrassed, terrified of being calling a spade a spade might just be racist. Well, you know, what happens today uh, when people, and I'd have to say within Maritim, when people get used to preferential treatment, when they get used to preferential treatment, equal treatment starts to seem like discrimination to them. And that is an absolute reality. I have just on the water one again, uh, Jasper, uh, you'll recall perhaps some years back, uh, maybe three or four years ago, um, the Green Party was saying we must now start charging for water. 
And this oh. was around about the same time that Naitahu lodged a claim in the High Court for ownership of water. Now, they can't control it, but most commercial users have meters on their um, water uh, intakes these days, including uh, domestic water. So um, a farmer cannot take water unless it's metered. Now, um, how long is it going to be before that 10 cents a cubic meter that was promoted by the Greens, how long is it going to be before that becomes a uh, just another cost being lumbered on the people that use water for stock, for irrigation, to grow wheat, barley, oats, you know, whatever? Um, it, that, that is my uh, just... I, I guess some people might say you're scaremongering. Uh, no, I think one of the tricks you've got to have if you're in this political world is to try and sort of think ahead of, you know, what is likely to occur, um, just whether it's demand for roading or demand for water, it doesn't matter. You've got to, that's the planner's job is for that. And um, I, I looked at that 10 cents a cubic metre and I thought this will go straight to Maritim. And yeah, and I, I, I wouldn't have a problem to some extent if I could see good outcomes for Maoris, but that's not happening. The only good mm. outcomes seem to be for Evie, the average Maori, as many of my mates who at one time thought I'm being racist are now realizing is no better off. How can you start talking about the fact they don't have housing and you don't have this and you have Evie sitting on billions of dollars of untaxed assets? There is something really wrong here. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I do recall um, the redoubtable Winston Peters. Am I allowed to use his name on your radio? Oh, oh. <laughs> Go for it. Yes. Winston Peters uh, made a comment many years ago that I think is, is great truism. He said the average Maori will not get a snapper. Mm. They will not get a snapper out of some deal that was being made. It was probably the Sea Lords deal or whatever. Uh, and uh, I, I thought, yeah, that is likely to be the case. Um, and I agree with you, Jasper, that, that if we could lift uh, people out of poverty and uh, uh, they, they would uh, have a better lifestyle and, um, you know, learn, learn a few facets about raising children and so on in, in a better way and uh, providing them with, with good nourishing food, I, I'm all for that. But you've got to show me the evidence first that mm. this is going to work. Well, well, who wouldn't be for all that? But what I've noted in um, not just the last three years, probably the last 10 years, actually, uh, or even longer, but however long I've been interested in this stuff, there seems to be an anger developing uh, through all fa facets of society, as especially, um, you could argue, uh, young young maori and young um young europeans it doesn't make any difference there's an anger developing you you only have to go to a shopping mall and listen to the discussions that some of them are having you know just keep your ears open and it's it's an angry discussion uh why is that why have we it's it's the division that's being created by the haves versus the have nots apparently i mean i've never thought of things like that um but clearly um uh there's been a, a divide purposely put into a, a, a society i would say though just countering my own argument there for a moment in the last three years the wealthier have got wealthy 
sorry, the wealthy have got wealthier um, through through cronyism. And so the rich get richer and the poor get poorer um, is, a, is, a, is a line that would work for the select few in the top tier of town in New Zealand. Uh, but certainly those of us in the middle of New Zealand, we're being squeezed. And I know Christopher Luxon's talking about the middle, uh, the, the, the middle that's squeezed, uh, the squeezed middle, sorry. Um, but, you know, this anger that I'm, I'm witnessing with the young it's purposefully done. It's purposely done, in my opinion. Create division helps. It helps a lot, doesn't it? Create the victimhood. Well, yes, it does. Yeah, I, I agree. And again, I, I agree. The and and like a lot of people, I hope other people anyway. You've got to think of what is the cause of this. Why? Why are these these things happening? And. Um, I guess um, you go to the bank for a loan to build a factory to make widgets, uh, and uh, you wanted to borrow, you know, two hundred thousand um, dollars. The bank would look at you with with very um, uh, toxic sort of glancing. But if you go in there and you say, "I want to borrow two hundred million," oh, we're very welcome. Please come in. You know. Now here's here's a very interesting. I think it was a very interesting thing. I saw an interview many years ago now by. With a um, a chap who was a professor of banking at either Cambridge or Oxford University, and uh, he asked the interviewer, he said, "Now, do you understand what the problem with our banking system is in New Zealand, and why local industry can't get the sort of money they need to borrow to 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 grow their grow their business?" And he made the point that in the UK there are seven major banks, just seven. Uh, from Lloyd's to the Bank of England to the Scottish Bank and um, whoever they are. Now he said to the interviewer, how many banks are there in Germany? Because they're one of the most successful industrial nations. And the chap said, well, I really don't know. And he said, well, his round figure is 37. Now, therein lies the difference, that if you wanted to develop and grow something in Alexandra, or in um, Queenstown or whatever, you went to the local bank and the local bank had access to money wherever it was. They made the decisions because they know who you are. And uh, they would often as not forward that money to you so you can grow your business locally. And uh, it, it, it just becomes a, an opportunity for local people um, to get uh, good outcomes uh, for their local communities. They're employing people, they can pay more, all of this uh, sort of aspect of things. But um, I think the banking system has got a lot to answer for in terms of um, encouraging people to, to grow and build local businesses. Um, and uh, I, 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 it, it concerned me a lot. Because we've only, what have we got in New Zealand? About four, four major banks, uh, three or four banks, and um, they're all pretty much the same. Uh, yeah, well, Jerry, Jerry there's we... Few, um, there's a few reasons for what, what's happening. Well, yeah, on the show, we talk about uh, ESGs and DEI and DEIB and um, corporate um, indexing. And, of course, uh, we know there's big fund managers uh, manipulating our companies, and I've got a view, and you may uh, want to talk about uh, your understanding of the desire for competition. I think the biggest issue facing us in this middle squeeze is the lack of competition. 
that big corporates had, and and crony capitalism is is taking yeah. out of yeah. play now. What's your understanding? What does competition bring to us? I mean, what is? It's a big question because uh, the West is big on competition. It used to be uh, the the slow destruction of that seems to be a problem to me, anyway. Oh, <clears throat> look, the competition really doesn't exist in New Zealand, and if you ask why the cost of living is so high. Uh, the supermarkets, I, I don't say they actually collude, but it's pretty damn close to it. Um, and we've only got two of them. Uh, the oil companies, the cost of their uh, fuel uh, is pretty much the same, might take a cent here or a few cents there. But um, the building industry, uh, Fletcher Challenge, Fletcher Building many years ago tried to buy up as I understand it, all the sawmills in this country so they could dominate the price of, um, control the price of timber. Uh, I don't know that they finally got that through. But, um, you know, the cost of building today, we're in a 10-year-old house. We built it. And uh, I think it was around about $1,500 a square metre to build 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I'm told it's closer to 5000 today. Yep. And and a lot of that, you know, the, the, the material that we use in this house is a lot of timber. Um, and I, I just think today the, the competitiveness within the uh, industry, uh, the building supply firms, is not what it should be. And I don't believe the Commerce Commission is doing its job effectively in challenging uh, the, these companies, these supplying companies. Uh, you know, I think it's very, very sad that uh, the cost of, of land and the cost of a house is now beyond the average person in this country. It should never be allowed to happen, but it is. And then so, you have the government swoop in as a saviour, you know, low cost homes and healthy homes. And let's add costs to landlords, the ones who are in a business of providing accommodation far cheaper yes. Then the motel accommodation you are, you know, condemning young children to grow up in. No, let's uh, take away the interest rate deduction and then wonder why in the blazes have rents gone yeah. up? No, then yeah. let us put rent controls as the Greens are now lobbying. Who was it that said, uh, I know of no better way to destroy a city, bar bombing other than uh, rent control? Yeah, and yeah. we've seen that all over the world, Jasper, too. Mm. Uh, that that uh, these sort of controls, um, you know, I, I freely, I, I've, I've got a, a little interest in uh, in property other than our own home. Mm -hmm. uh, it's uh, I, I rent a house out in Cromwell, just twenty minutes up the road, yep. to a lovely couple they're, they're from Fiji, and mm -hmm. boy, do they work hard. Mm -hmm. they're, they're good people, top people. Uh, and I reward that they're getting the house for significantly less than uh, the market rent uh, because I want to keep good people. Um, mm. But if this government gets back in, the first thing I will do is sell the house. Yep. And and mm. they won't have anywhere to rent. Uh, well, they have to go and find somewhere and it's going to cost them probably uh, another $150 a week. And that is what bad policy does to people who actually like me, perhaps uh, you know, um, I can, I can withstand some some pressures. But when government whack you for doing sensible things, you say, "Well, why bother?" 
But it's not like they didn't know, Don. They were told, they were advised, Treasury advised government, this would be the fallout. And that Mm. brings me back to what I said. It's time to stop looking for a reason and treason. This is Mm. exactly what was intended all along. Yeah, 100%. I I remember we started this talking about competition. I remember saying uh, at a meeting in Gore, when actually when I stood for ACT in 2014, that every nail was burdened with bureaucracy. (laughs) And... um, so you've got that side of it, plus you've got the supply side. Uh, no wonder housing is so damned expensive because the quality of housing may have marginally improved in that time. <clears throat> but what is the significant cost? It is around land as well. There's a whole lot of perm- things that are wrong um, that free enterprise are left alone could have sorted. But the meddlers of the parliament have decided that they know better. And of course, uh, the prime minister, former prime minister, was so kind and so everything was so, uh, so important to have this just transition. Well, it has been so unjust. Uh, if people can't see that now and they vote for that again, you're right, Jerry, uh, this place is um, sort of in terminal mode. Well, you know, we, we've got uh, 10 acres of wilding pines and rabbits uh, where we are in Alexandra, just out of Alexandra. But the council, uh, I'm, I'm zone rural, therefore I cannot subdivide. And yet, you know, I could put two or three sections on this place uh, uh, at a reasonable price and uh, if if I was allowed to, but I'm not. No. So I can't no. even do it, if, even if I want to, because councils control your ability to subdivide and oh. that, should, that should go straight away. Good, good point, Jerry. But you know, if you pay enough people, enough planners, and enough consultants, and go through enough notified hearings, and and you've got the right contacts, you could you could swing this, but it will cost you everything that oh, you would yeah. likely make. Yeah. And uh, yeah. many of us face that same issue. So uh, yeah, it's a it's a problem. I mean, you would have noticed this sort of stuff around the council table that you've probably got. I imagine you had to keep your yeah, you know, to try and keep sane, you probably couldn't fight every battle around an ORC table. But uh, what 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 sort of stuff did you face? What was the worst excesses of um, powers that did you see around uh, the ORC, Otago Regional Council table? Well, I guess it, you know around water again, because uh, apparently people in urban Dunedin, urban uh, councillors know far more about water in the country than than people who live there. Uh, And as an example, uh, we had uh, a big uh, issue around the Lindus River, very similar to what's happening on on our river. Um, It took 10 years, guys, 10 years for that Lindus River uh, issue, the the, the minimum flow to be resolved. Because, uh, well, the then chairman, who was a farmer from way down south, uh, from uh, down south somewhere, South Otago, pretty much, didn't understand the issues, didn't understand the people. Uh, And uh, they had another fellow um, uh, deputy, I think he was at the time. He didn't understand uh, the issues either, really. And uh, it took 10 years, something over a million dollars for the local, a small local community, uh, it cost them that much to get professional advice. God knows how much it cost the regional council, probably two or three or four times that amount. 
And in 10 years, it was finally resolved pretty much in court. So, um, you know, that was, I think, one of the worst aspects um, of, um, you know, I can recall one councillor saying when they, uh, they put the rate up for a flood protection on the Tyree, and this particular council said, no, it's not a problem. They're, they're getting a really good price for their milk at the moment, so let's put the price up. <laughs> you know, they, they, I, I just I just have to come home and lie down on the couch with a, with a stiff whiskey. I really do. And isn't it, isn't it interesting how... There was just, you know, people wouldn't, li- they wouldn't listen because it, it was, I, I, you know, for me, I, I would dump regional councils off the face of the earth tomorrow if I could, mm. but I can't. But, it wasn't uh, it in 2021 that they were proposing Otago Regional Council a 73% rate rise? 73. Three. 73% rate rise was proposed. It hit the media and I've just looked, yep, 73% general rate rise and a 47% Overall rate rise was what Otago Regional Council was proposing in yeah, 2021. Yeah, I don't yeah. know what they settled at. I won't, uh, you know, <laughs> bother to venture. But the fact yeah. that they can even think that. Well, one of my favorite topics uh, in, in back then too, and indeed today, is that the Otago Regional Council own uh, Port Otago on our behalf, behalf of the rate payers. Port Otago, in turn, own a, a company called Chalmers Properties, which has something in the order of $650 million worth of property on their books. Uh, and I said, well, why, in order to uh, shelter the uh, ratepayer a bit from these massive rate increases, 18 20% rate increases, why don't we get Chalmers Properties or ask the uh, directors of Port Otago to sell, to sell the, uh, you know, at least, some of the assets, uh, sell a bit of capital, get rid of it, free up a bit of capital so that we can uh, do our environmental work, water testing and all that sort of thing. Why we, we can do that with the with the funds instead of whacking the poor old ratepayer constantly. Well, that was absolute heresy. Hmm. You know, um, uh, uh, Gretchen Robinson said, well, if, if we sold off our asset, we wouldn't have any asset in the future. Or was that a fact? <laughs> Oh my God! Um, you know, you, 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 there, there was very little economic understanding around that council. Uh, I think, I think some of the, uh, the the staff did, but um, uh, you know, uh, most. Just to finish on that particular one, um, most uh, re, uh, most ports are now owned: Port, port of Tauranga, Ports of Auckland, uh, Bluff, uh, Timaru, and Canterbury. There's private ownership uh, involved, or in a percentage basis, or whatever, mm. and uh, but not in Dunedin, not in the People's Republic of um, Dunedin. Uh, it's a bit like North Korea down there, I think sometimes. Oh. But it, it, it's ridiculous that we've got these massive assets, underperforming assets, uh, like like Port Otago and and Chambers Properties, and uh, we're not introducing the level of expertise. And indeed, uh, uh, the uh, the requirements, I guess, that that, that marketplace um, drives good, efficient um, decision making, mm-hmm. and it's just not happening down our well. Way. Well, you know, and that seventy three percent when inflation was running at sort of two to three percent in those years uh, seems yeah. obscene. It was thirty percent in my region, and I remember going to a um, challenge the councillors. 
and uh, they said, oh, this is just, um, we can't stop the devolution of responsibility coming from Wellington. Well, yes, you can. Yes, you can. just say, no, we're not doing it. And the worst thing of all of this, Jerry, is aside from them not using their asset base and, and you know, offsetting things with that, is that the people that are in behind the desks at these council councils and in Wellington are all harvesting from the environment. That's the key. And they totally refuse to acknowledge that they are putting the most pressure on the New Zealand environment, whether it's a farm business or any other business. They are the biggest abuser of power and biggest user of the environment. Now, we hope to get on a guy from Western, uh, from Australia who's talking about how the growth of regulations over there has outstripped the productivity that farmers could gain by a factor of about five to one uh, in the last 10 years, three, four to five to one. Um, we've got to have that shown in New Zealand. It's all right to have groundswell out there saying, say no, but we need to put the numbers up. Why? It's out of kilter. And it is seriously out of kilter in this country. We don't mind paying our way. We don't mind um, bringing, the, you know, the. we don't mind um, the hand up mentality that we need, you know, ethos that you need to have for people that need a hand up. But this self-aggrandizement by the, uh, by the bureaucrats, uh, by the um, people in suits is all overbearing for me and by the sound of it it is for you and i've read reading your your blogs on breaking views and we need to get you back to talk about some of these because we've just done a once over lightly with jerry ekoff today <laughs> yeah. um um you know i think we agree on more than we disagree on uh jerry uh we are going to have to wrap this because we've had our hour but um and i'm ending it with a massive statement um, I hope you've enjoyed your hour with uh, Jasper and Don on RCR Greenwashed. And uh, will will you come back? That's the key. Has it been? Has it been? Sedu have we seduced you enough to say you enjoy it? Uh, <clears throat> Don and Jasper, I, I must have a wee relief valve somewhere on my being uh, uh -huh. that sometimes gets blocked completely, and and we all <laughs> need a relief valve. Uh, to perhaps get rid of a, a few pent up emotions and and the opportunity to talk to like minded people uh, who understand stuff clearly understand the way uh, the world works has just been a tonic for me personally. Uh, I, I've so much appreciated the opportunity to come and talk with you. Uh, I guess we've we've covered a multitude of sins over this uh, uh, over this hour or so. Um, and without doing probably justice to each one of them as they, they should be done. But um, uh, I, I think your listeners out there, um, I hope I haven't bored them with some of my personal prejudices uh -huh. and attitudes towards things. But, um, we, you know, I think Jasper is dead, but we've just got to, we've got to do better and, yeah. um, you know, listen to people uh, who, who have the knowledge and the experience, and I'm not talking about we three, I'm talking about there's there's people all over the place with with wonderful knowledge, but they just shrug their shoulders and walk away now because it's become too difficult. Mm. So I go back to another word if I can finish on that. Uh, we, we have got to have the courage to stand and, and, and I follow. I'll tell you what I will finish with. It's a little poem. Um, her name, what was her name? Her name was uh, Clara Ruth Crane, I, I think, or Ella, Ella Wheeler Wilcox, American. 
around about 1900, when they still had sailing ships, and she said this, one ship drives to the east and another to the west by the self-same wind that blows. So it is not the gale, it's the set of your sail that determines the direction we go. And we're heading to the rocks, guys. We really are. I thought was that little poem of hers is so out today. It's not the gale. It's not the wind. The direction of the wind. It's how you set your sail. And um, we, we we desperately need a reset uh, of our sail come 14th of October, is it? <laughs> so yeah, no, um, good yeah, luck look, with that one, too. Thank yeah. you very much for the opportunity. Uh, I'll have to get going, too. I'm meant to be joining a bunch of old fellas singing a few songs at, at a few rest homes uh, shortly. I'm not All right. yet, but I'm sure I will be shortly. <laughs> All right, Jerry. Well, look, it's good you you can you've you've blown your pipes out. Uh, you you you've got you've loosened them up uh, on the show and uh, let loose when you get with your old mates down the road. So thanks for coming on RCR. Um, we're not re, re, we're not um, relief control radio. We're reality check radio, and uh, yeah. uh, we're very proud of the fact that we're an independent uh, force in this country. Brilliant, brilliant. And and just just keep going, guys. Just keep going. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Welcome back to Greenwash. You're with me, Just Read, and joining me now is Jill. And we are again going to take a deep dive into the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And we are up to this time around. Goal number five, which is achieve gender equality and empower all women and girls. But hey, welcome, Jill. Hi, Jaspreet. How are you? Hanging in there, mate. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. It's a little bit chilly down in the south at the moment. We've had some beautiful days, though. Hey, um, There's no global boiling? Uh, no, no, not yet. We're not <laughs> boiling in our own sweat yet like an egg, but, you know, I'm sure it will come. Um SDG 5 is probably one of the most heartbreaking of, of all the of all the 17 sustainable development goals. It it does my head in going through um going through this. So you you can rock it off and it start. sounds so good in practice, Jill. SDG 5, you know, women's equality. Oh. When they begin from it, it says I mean, I'm looking again, uh, listeners, at the People's Report, which is a report on how well we are doing on the SDGs. You can find this on www.sdg.org.nz. But otherwise, just Google People's Report, SDGNZ. There it comes. SDG 5 says, after 125 years, you know, of New Zealand getting being the first country to get women the vote, we have a historically high number of women in parliament, which is led by, or should I say was led by, our third women prime minister. The governor general, chief justice are all women. 
Yet in 2018, the UN Committee on Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women has made over 60 recommendations to the New Zealand government, reminding us of how much more needs to be done to achieve genuine gender equality and equity. And yeah, are we that bad that we need 60 recommendations, Jill? <laughs> well, no, I, I don't think we're bad at all. And I think most of these recognize, you know, these recommendations um, are are just just rubbish because you you can't make all people perform exactly the same way um, or think the same way or be tolerant the same way. So I'll just flick back to my little, I love this, I've, I've got a series of these goals. So goal five is to achieve um, gender equality and empower all women and girls. And then the translation of that, and this is, this is the meaning behind everything, um, is to promote the LGBTQ and feminist agendas, marginalise families, heterosexuality, men and boys. And and I tend to, to go very much with the translation. Um, well, growing up in New Zealand as a woman, women's rights, you know, I you have a more on a handle of these things. I'll, I'll go back to India in a bit with my experience, but growing up as a woman, did you face any significant barriers? And, you know, I'm just sticking to the goal per se on face value, women's equality. What did you face um, barriers? I grew up in the, in the, in the days of girls can do anything. So that was in the seventies. And I'm sure a lot of, a lot of people, if there are 60 plus, um, will remember that. And we were trying to bring equality for women then, Mm-hmm. And 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 the whole mantra it was a saying you know girls can do anything it was very much pushed on TV, um, in magazines and and everything it was the beginning of the days of, of real feminism. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that really hit hard in the seventies. So as a teenager, I grew up with magazines like Cosmopolitan and Cleo, and it taught you how to be an independent, sassy woman, mm-hmm. um, and that's what we thought it meant. And that we were on a pretty equal footing with men, and and our society was a lot calmer then um, than it is now. So again, I grew up in that time. I grew up in the in the days of of, of women's lib when it was really starting to get going. I grew up in the days of um, homosexual law reform to decriminalise homosexuality and to let gay people live their lives as they saw fit and, and in freedom in New Zealand. So I went through those upheavals. But it seems the further we've gone along in time, the worse these issues have got, and, and they seem to be driven by this insidious um, United Nations agenda. Mm. You know, so so women, you know, women have always done remarkable things Um when our men went to war, it was the women who ran farms. We weren't exactly little snowflakes um, who couldn't do anything. And, and women have always been in the workforce in in one way or another. And mm-hmm. I actually think getting all these women into the workforce is just to garner more tax, quite frankly. I'm quite cynical about it. I was yeah. speaking to Don Nicholson, uh, I think a couple of days ago, on something similar. And he mentioned to me, he says, just read, I don't want to, you know, sound like and uh, an old sod here. But he says in those days of his younger days, he says, in a family, the 
mother could stay at home and on one income you could have a roof over your head decent meals on the table and could even afford an occasional holiday and today we seem to have both parents working and yet still struggling yes and that was the american the american dream too was to have a chicken in the pot and a car in the garage mm. you know and and that was very much the middle class dream and new zealand had achieved that in many ways we still had pockets of poverty but you will never get rid of it um to be fair too there were some things that weren't quite openly spoken about so if there sure. were problems maybe you know we wouldn't have known and now every problem gets brought to the fore but we could on on a single wage you could buy a house have a car and, and have six kids running around um, yeah. But, of course, now you can't do that because you need to have a car seat for every child and, you know, the, the problems compound, things are more expensive. Um, so those large families on, on big sections are, are long gone. Yeah. You know, well, and, and that was the New Zealand I, I grew up in. It was, a, it was a pretty cool place, actually. So these SDGs are not, you know, I mean, they are universal, but they're affecting different countries in, in different ways. Not talking about the homeland in India. So as everyone knows, most listeners would know, I come from an army family in India. And the Indian army is, believe it or not, nearly the population of Auckland, nearly uh, 1.5 million strong. And women, till about two years ago, which is when I have been able to find the official figures for, women were less than 1% of the Indian army. Yet... Earlier this year, the government and the government suggested something really strange. They said, because we seem to make a big song and dance in India about uh, the Republic Day, and you have India's military might on display in New Delhi for the world to see. And different contingents from different battalions march past. This year, they are saying, uh, for the year coming, January 2024, they say it, it should be having just women. Just have a listen to this. The parade could feature only women participants from the marching contingents and bands to the tableau and performances. Government sources have said on Sunday in a radical shake-up that is bound to make a statement. The decision, part of a larger effort to promote female representation and empowerment in the military and other sectors, has been conveyed to the armed forces and government departments and its implementation is being worked out reportedly. A note sent in March to the forces and other stakeholders involved in the organization of the annual parade, which takes place at uh, what is now known as the Kartavya Path, formerly known as Rajpath, in New Delhi on the 26th of January, had announced the plan NDTV has learned. So they've decided that India, to make a statement, to tick off these SDGs, need to, needs to exclude nearly 99% of its armed forces by having just women in that Republic Day Parade. I saw something similar, you know, being pushed or, you know, just being promoted, not being pushed because we had a Women in Aviation Month in New Zealand in February or March this year. And there was all these write-ups about a trans-Tasman flight being uh, manned entirely by a female crew, everyone from the stewards to the pilot to the co-pilot, everyone ground crew was women. Why do we feel this is needed? 
that would be my question. I mean, where is that would that's what I would ask. Be it the India statement that you know, let's include ninety nine percent of the Indian army, or be it the fact that it's an all women crew in the Air New Zealand flight. The point is, do women need to do this to prove their worth? This is a country that was the first in the world to give women the right to vote. To vote, Jill. Well, you know, are we? You know, we've been a little bit precious about this because Israel's army, like when everybody leaves school, everybody goes and does two years of military training. So most of the women in Israel go into the army at mm. some stage, and they're not crowing about it. You know, and, and and they need to do that because they're a very small country and, and they need to protect their border. Um, so, you know, we've been a little bit safe and a little bit precious about everything we're doing instead of looking at, at actually how our lives work out, you know, and, and pan out. I mean, we obviously haven't got enough to worry about if this is, <laughs> if this is the biggest thing we've got to worry about. But, you know, when you, when you look at this, though, it's too end all forms of discrimination. But it's going to be things like these all-female crews and these all-female army marching and the all-female this and the all-female that that actually starts to grow that discrimination because it leads to resentment in our boys and our, our men. Mm. Mm. Exactly. And I actually, you know, India, for India to have all women contingent, leave aside the fact that they are going to leave exclude 99% of uh, the actual armed forces, if only that virtue signaling was more than what we just see, you know, a, a public show of ticking off the UN SDGs, what's actually very prevalent in India is sexual exploitation in certain categories, and no one seems to do anything about it. At the same time, when Indian government is crowing about the fact that yeah, next year, watch out, World Indian Republic Day Parade. We have this group of Indian wrestlers, top-achieving, world-class wrestlers, who have been accusing their coach of asking for, you know, sexual favors, sexual exploitation for months. Months in New Delhi. Nothing happens. Absolutely nothing happens. I think the happens. head of the sports governing body resign or be removed with accusations of sexual harassment. But after months of the investigations going nowhere, women are now camping out and protesting in the street with growing public support. CNN's Vedika Sood has the story. They're up just after dawn, emerging from tents on a dusty roadside in the heart of New Delhi. Quickly, their makeshift home becomes a training ground. These women are celebrated athletes. They've held this protest vigil day and night for over a week. Their fight could bring a MeToo reckoning for Indian sport. And this is actually what I'm talking about. If you are actually going to talk about women's empowerment, we might actually start putting the you know perpetrators in jail, but that doesn't happen. And this is where Jill and I have often spoken about that how these SDGs are nothing more than virtue signaling and ticking off certain boxes for our leaders to have an immaculate uh, United Nations uh, scorecard. You know, and and is this are these are these being used as wrecking balls? Because you you know you look at you look at the New Zealand I grew up in, and 
what India would have been at that same time. And, mm. and we had a very, you know, India's got a very specific, it's got very specific cultural and and religious pockets to it. Yep. Um, and, and is this a, a complete wrecking ball to smash, to completely smash the system? You know, and and is, is India susceptible to it, and yet they don't use the same standards and goals in, like, Middle Eastern countries or um, countries that have a harder-lined religious backing to them. That, you know, we, we're not going into Saudi Arabia or the UN's not going into Saudi Arabia um, to to push the this gender equality because women there have a, have a different role in life. So, yep. you know, is it being used as a wrecking ball breakdown cultural barrier to, to bring us all into a one uniform world? Yet, and Jill, I, I completely agree. What is easily, you know, just passed, passed around here without anyone raising an eyebrow would absolutely get radicals out in the streets in Delhi or the Middle East and we, you know, there's no problem there for the UN. I will go back to the People's Report again on SDG 5 because it goes on this report to talk about the fact that SDG 5 is incomplete. It says SDG 5 fails to recognize gender diversity and fluidity including the LGBTQIA++ community. The government needs to implement recommendations from the Universal Periodic Review, including explicit prohibition of discrimination against transgender people in the Human Rights Act. Legislation is needed to enable people across the gender spectrum to be who they are and continue to express their identity and enjoy equal opportunity without discrimination. So this is what they are telling a country where marriage equality has been there. No one raises an eyebrow. I mean, very honestly, I come from a place that I don't really care what you do in your bedroom. You know, I if I meet people at work, I meet them just for work. I do not look into their ethnicity, their background, their cultural norms, their religion. None of that matters to me. I go to work. I just go to work. But it seems there's this whole thing about bringing your whole self to work. What does that even mean, bringing your whole self to work? Wasn't weren't you just supposed to go do a hard day's job for you know and just go home? That was that was it. Your home is where you would express everything. Now suddenly, nothing is sacrosanct. I, regardless of what I was, you know, straight, queer, whatever the spectrum is, I would never be an exhibitionist. And most of I don't know many, but the handful of gay people I do know or sexually diverse, they are not exhibitionists, Jill. They are not. No, although it can be a very flamboyant culture. So, yes, so, um, you know, we've got all parts of our cultures that are, that are quite flamboyant and the, the the gay transgender culture can be very flamboyant. Um, but bringing your whole self to work, I mean, for most of us, we should leave 70% of us at home and just take our, our working brains to work and, and leave everything else behind. But we don't seem to be able to do that now. We've got to promote who we are and why we are so special. Um, mm. And it irritates me a little bit or irritates me a lot. I've worked in male-dominated jobs nearly all my life um, and you get the odd lippy bloke but yep. you deal with them because you you 
need to. Mm. You know, you need to learn to get over it instead of melting down. And I don't feel that I have been discriminated against because I'm a woman. Mm. Um, I don't feel that I've had a harder time because I'm a woman. Um, and I don't feel that I've had to prove myself harder because I've, I'm a woman. It it also means that it is being implied that anyone who is, say, causing trouble for you at work is going to be a male. Well, what about women inflicting grief? <laughs> well, well, that's true. And I had never worked with so many women as what I did when I first came down to the South Island. And I was shocked at how horrible they are. But what really annoys me is that I need my government or there's a there's a need for government to step up and and go in and bat for me. And, and I don't need my government to bat for me. I don't need for them to make my workplace a, a safe place or to to pass laws to make sure that I'm not discriminated again against, you know, and this personal responsibility comes with this, and that's what the SDGs take away from everybody's personal responsibility. Yeah. And now let's go to a bit of following the money and seeing where the corporate bit comes into this. Because we have come to a stage, listeners, regardless of, uh, you know, which way you're inclined, I, I really couldn't care less about people's sexualities, as long as, you know, we relate on any issue, a particular matter, or we are just able to have a civil debate, that is all that matters. But the People's Report now talks about the fact that New Zealand needs to do more like uh, have global women or women on boards, companies. Deloitte had a study in 2017 that said only 40% of businesses have a gender policy. Only 26 measured how well they were doing on their gender policy. Only 7% businesses have dedicated budget to develop or execute their diversity and inclusion policy. New Zealand men are not being encouraged to take parental leave. This, all of this, is businesses now ticking off ESG or DEI, regardless, you know, depends what you think of it. DEI is the whole diversity, equity, and inclusion bit, or ESG is your environmental, social, and governance factors. All of these basically are telling a business, we don't care about your core competencies or your bottom line. You need to do this fluffy stuff. And just like Jill said, I do not want my government looking after my well-being. You can, as long as you can just manage our economy, provide us decent roads. Thank you. I'm a grown adult woman. I can take care of myself. There is the Human Rights Act, which over the last three years showed us is not worth the paper it's written on. That is supposed to protect me against gender-based discrimination. And I'll use that. Thank you very much. If I can find an honest judge or judiciary in this land. But other than that, all of this is putting businesses into financial straitjackets, ultimately. We had NZ Steel talk about 40-40-20 ratio, men, women, and remaining being gender diverse or any gender. We have companies now reporting on their ethnicities and how many women and breaking the glass barrier and all of this. I will also say for myself, personally, I'm not speaking for you, Jill, but there have been breaks in career that I have taken very willingly, put my career on the back burner, re, you know, restarted it later on, as and when my family kids, at times my parents in India needed me, I have done that. 
and I'm actually grateful to have the luxury of being able to do that because my man held a steady job down paying the bill bills. Now, this report is talking about the fact that women lose benefits and throughout their lives, there's a gender pay gap remains a major barrier for women. This contributes to lower savings, less security. All of this, as far as I'm concerned, is poppycock. Many of this, these issues that they point out are things that I have very willingly done because I put family ahead of everything. PC families the, and this with um the goals. So these goals really are the ultimate of the of the ESGs of the environmental, um, social, and governance. And and so these seventeen sustainable development goals encompass. This is actually what the ESGs are all about. But nowhere does it take into account human emotion. Mm. You know, and, and what we do as as good, decent human beings. So okay, I was in a fortunate position where. I could be an at-home mum, but I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. And I, and even though you know I had a, a pretty long, a pretty long youth, if you want to put it like that, and I didn't have my first child until I was thirty-five. So, but I was ready to be at home and be a mum because that was my role as a woman. My role oh, as a woman, not every woman's role, but it was my role as a woman. And and I don't. I don't feel that anybody looked down on me because of that. Mm. Um, I, you know, my husband and I had got a good relationship. Um, we've brought up a family in a traditional manner, and I don't feel that I've lost anything or that my government didn't look after me. You know, so yep. so all of these problems come about they're um, non-problems that are suddenly made into a huge problem. Right, and I think now, listeners, we have sort of. You know, Jill and I, I think we've thrashed Jill the women's lib part here. I think it's now time <laughs> to move on to the part two that they had talk of, saying that SDG 5 doesn't go far enough into the into protections of the LGBTQIA community. And yet again, it is United Nations, World Economic Forum, and all of these bringing this down. We have activists like Shanil Lal, you know, them of the yes. Posey Parker um, issue when uh, she was down here, Kelly Jaquin, and the whole, I, I would say it was straight phobia at that time, homophobia turned on its head and not letting the lady speak because you are shutting an individual down and you get awarded Kiwi Bank, New Zealander of the Year. Chanel was also responsible for spearheading the end of the conversion uh, bill, you know, no more praying the gay away, which I do not agree with at all. But my point at that time was, where is the need for this bill when uh, OIA to the Human Rights Commission showed that in the two decades preceding this, there was no sign of a complaint that this was actually happening. It might be happening somewhere, but it was obviously not under the you know scrutiny by the human rights commission but there we had we created an activist we put them on the highest podium we have now held them up an example to new zealanders someone who openly promoted violence against a woman trying to speak someone who uses the term turf and turf is a word i came to know last year because there was this questionnaire sent to me 
standing for the local body elections, that would you allow council premises to be used for turf events? So I googled turf, and I'm showing my age here. It means trans-excluding radical feminists. So we have seen that Speak Up for Women has been shut out of events. We have gender self-ID now, so you can choose to identify as anything. We never seem sorry. to hear about the fact, Jill, sorry, Scotland, you've had men in women's prisons claiming they are women, a rapist then being allowed to go to the women's wing, raping again. The Scottish Prime Minister, she resigned over the whole fiasco. It didn't make any waves here in the media. So when you when you talk about a turf, so this is also the um, I do know that a lot of the lesbian groups are getting very upset because they're being gate crashed by um, by men, mm. and you know a, a lot of a lot of the lesbian groups were more of the radical feminists. Yeah, a and and I don't I don't blame them because they do not want their their um, they don't want their parade taken over. You know, Completely. transgender. Um, you know, they fought to be away from men, and now suddenly they they're having to accept them again. But the interesting thing too with this SDG is target five point two is eliminate all forms of violence. Yeah, you know. So so how does how does that happen when you when you're setting groups up against each other? It, you know, nobody nobody got really upset with what happened with Posey Parker. Um, and that certainly isn't eliminating all forms of violence. It just makes violence okay from one group. And it, it happens because it's openly cordoned because our Prime Minister was the one who said at the Bill and Melinda Gates uh, Foundation that hosted the UN Goalkeepers Conference that we, New Zealand, will be the first country in the world to put the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals into it's ready legislation, and that's exactly yes. what you're doing. I'd like you to listen to this clip from 2022 Davos World Economic Forum Conference on Gender Equality. Please be with me. Visible LGBTQI civil society organization. We work with news, business, entertainment, faith leaders, sports, governments, and individual activists from around the globe to ensure and educate public people on LGBTQ issues and move policy forward. I've been running GLAAD for eight years now, and prior to that, I was a media executive at Time Inc. in the United States and Condé Nast. I'm also married to my wife, Kristen, and we have twin 13-year-olds that we're raising. That's another full-time job. Um, <laughs> But today, I'm really proud to sit on WEF's Power of Media Task Force, and GLAAD is a very proud partner of the Partnership for Global LGBTQI Equality, which is also known as PGLE. And PGLE was launched right here in 2019 and is a project of WEF and the UN Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. I think we've heard enough there. This lady speaking was Sarah Kate Ellis. She is the CEO of GLAD. GLAD spelled with a double A. That's the world's largest lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer media advocacy organization. And she was talking about the fact that WEF, World Economic Forum, and UN and them are all working together in partnership 
to stop violence against the LGBTQIA++ and whatever the spectrum has. Well, I have no problem with that. But when will you stop, number one, actually making women unsafe by putting men in women's places, spaces? And number two, which is my bigger, bigger grudge here, when will you make it age appropriate? Who is pushing these drag, uh, drag queen story timers? Where is the age appropriateness in having five, six, seven, eight year olds exposed to this? Because they keep saying, oh, it's about acceptance. All right. It is about acceptance of people of a certain sexuality. But I don't want my five year old knowing about sexuality. And that's what you're talking about here, because they'll be perfectly fine with everything. But you think that's appropriate to push this through this narrative at such an early age. We also have Family Planning New Zealand, which pushes the gender and sexuality resources RSC curriculum in schools. Now, looking through their financial statements of uh, the New Zealand Family Planning Organization, there is money flowing in between them and United Nations between, you know, if you look at the 2022, 2021 financial statements, they are talking of getting grants or giving grants to the UNFPA, Union, uh, United Nations Family Planning Organization, and the IPPF, that's the International Planned Parenthood Foundation. If I look at the International Planned Parenthood Foundation, I open the page for the Arab world, there's a woman in a burqa. I open the page for India, there's uh, women and the talk of, you know, helping them with breastfeeding and reducing maternal mortality after childbirth. Then I open the page for Roshania. It is, opens up with a gay flag, pride flag, and says how far we've come. So is that what family planning has been morphed into? And all thanks to these unelected, unaccountable folks at the United Nations and WEF, and not one of our politician. Jill seems to think it's wrong. None of them national act. We have had, uh, you know, complete reversals of statements from even national here. Yeah. Yeah. And these, you know, this, when I, when you start looking into this, um, when you find out how many international organizations there are um, for transgender equality, transgender law center, um, there's mermaids, there's Transgender Health Centre, the Trevor Project, Transgender Europe. It goes on and on and on. And it's such a huge, it now encompasses almost everything. And and really the only winners out of this, I think this is a personal opinion, um, are the global drug companies, the, the big pharma. Yeah, you know, and and the losers are, are our children. One thing I, I and this is me just because I'm a bit straight, um, <laughs> with straight speaking with with language, the, the people who are reading to preschool children in libraries are, are not transgender; they're transvestites, and right. and we need to use the right language. Um, and a trans transvestite is a person who dresses up as the opposite sex, and they get a sexual thrill out of that. And mm. men who dress up as as women 
most of them, especially the more flamboyant of them, it, this is a sexual thing. It's not just because they like pretty makeup and, and rainbows and unicorns, which, by the way, flooded our shops a few years ago. Everything everything in kids, to, promoted to kids, was suddenly rainbows and unicorns, you know, and, and, and that's very much of the transvestite um, show. That's, that's what they're showing. But so, and a lot of this all stems back from... Um, 2019. So in 2019, this got to be a massive push, massive. So mm. there was obviously a global movement being pushed 2019 um, through to now. I mean, Jill, even looking at who's the author of this report, the People's Report on the STDs, is Dr. Gillian Greer. In 1998, Dr. Gillian Greer was appointed the chief executive of Family Planning New Zealand. So that's what, nearly, you know, 25 years ago. In 2006, Dr. Julian Greer was appointed the Director General of the International Planned Parenthood Federation that I just spoke about. That seems to have very close ties. It reflects in the financial statements of the New Zealand Family Planning uh, Organization. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation funds the International Planned Parenthood uh, Federation. So all of these are so intrinsically linked. And by chance, this document that Jill and I, uh, you know, thrash out the SDGs from is also written by somebody who was on this Planned Parenthood Foundation. How can you have a case? Because uh, I think, was it USA where they were talking recently about, uh, you know, Gen Z? Nearly 40% of them now identify as LGBTQ. How did that happen? Well, exactly. How, how did that happen and, and who does the identifying? Um, I think in New Zealand, too, our, our rates have gone up by 6% um, yep. as for people, just New Zealand kids. So the Gen Z thing, that's 18 to 34 years old. So we, we're obviously, I, I, it probably happened through taking fathers out of homes and take putting mothers into work. You know, and, and that's that was probably the thin end of, of, of a very big wedge. So, looking at and the so, U.S. statistics, they have this website called Statistica, and this is just the U.S. generation. Uh, people identifying as uh, sexually diverse were less than five percent, right up to for the older generation. You know, nineteen forty-five and earlier, it, they still are less than less than in fact two percent. Then you have Gen X born before 1980, they are also below 5%. Baby boomers, they're all, all of this genera- these three generations are below 5%. And then you have the millennials that are born before 96, between 80 and 96, around 12%. And then you have your Generation Z, kids born between 1997 and 2004. 20, so social 25%. Media. Yeah, social media. But social media's got to, and TikTok is poisonous. TikTok is a, is, a, is, a, is a dangerous Chinese spy app that, that encourages kids to do all sorts of things. Um, seriously, if you're a parent and your your child under the age of 34 has got TikTok, ban it. <laughs> I mean, I, I can tell you, and I don't know statistics, <gasps> I'm talking out of the top of my hat. I can tell you that TikTok, uh, it's, a, it's a Chinese application, Regardless of whatever you see here in the West, China's own citizens would not be seeing. Their algorithms yeah. will be altered to make them see something deemed patriotic. 
at the same time when we are turning our children into activists be it climate activists social justice colonialism gay rights and all of that china is still going on on maths and science and we have slipped nearly 15 places in oecd in our education rankings and uh, the number of references now referrals for uh, puberty blockers and gender dysphoria have gone through the roof i think we need to do much much better by our children i as a mother my kids are still you know in single digit uh, ages 6 and 8 i don't care what they identify as their mom will support them no matter what they choose to identify as all i ask is that make it age appropriate i do not want a 5 year old 6 year old 8 year old 10 year old anyone being exposed to this that earlier kids they are like a blank sheet mm-hmm. it is so easy and the commies have always gone after the children always <laughs> they are too and it's interesting because china china is also building manly men <laughs> which is very interesting and again too this comes to war you know we're we're in all sorts of war and it will end in physical war but china ha- has now um they're really abolishing and looking down on the more feminine men like the k-pop groups the korean pop groups mm. um and and they they're building manly men but one thing you know just for just again from my own life experience just um this equality for for women and, and protecting women so the united nations is very good at this they for women to have equality they must be educated so the first time i was in mongolia families oh. lived in family unit units you know and and that's what they did the second time i went back all the girls were gone and the girls to educate girls they take the girls away from the home and these these homes are girls on on you know endless acres in the middle of nowhere um and there's no mod cons it's a, it's a really hard life mm. so they get taken away from home to be educated and they go into the nearest of one of two big towns um where they have tv access to running water um they have shops um you know they live A, a primitive modern life but they don't want to go back to the life on the steps because it's hard and they're yeah. universally educated and they can get a job so what happens there is the boys then can't get a wife there's no girls around so they go to the cities to look for the girls and they've got no skills so a lot of them fall into poverty and and alcoholism and then it gets too hard for mum and dad so they walk off the land as well yep. and then the mining companies come in and that's happening to all these indigenous peoples around the world um t- to bring equality for women they take the girls away the boys I mean, follow parents leave from my own you know background in india the best thing you could do for gender equality i mean other than putting anyone accused of uh, sexual harassment i mean take some action there rather than these women wrestlers of india top athletes sleeping on the streets in new delhi protesting against this coach stop uh, gender id when i say gender id in uh, births and you know pregnancies because many of those countries both in africa and asia not just india pakistan but yeah pretty much the whole of asia i would say right up to the middle east there is a huge amount of uh, 
you know, subterfuge that happens when people want to know the gender. They want to know the gender and there's a preference. They know in certain societies for males, just get them stopped. But that doesn't happen. And yet we can wax lyrical about all of this. But Jill, our time is nearly up. And I would, before we go, like you to reflect. You had mentioned to me about a certain mayor whose life you used as an example of how far we've actually come on LGBTQ rights. Maybe it would be good to have a quick reflection oh, on that one. Georgina Byer. So Georgina Byer was, um, she was the mayor of Carterton. I will call her she. Mm-hmm. Um, Georgina was a transgender person and, and her life had been, her, her early life was, was terrible. She couldn't find her feet in her society. She came from a bit of an impoverished background and, and was open to because of her sexual choices, she was open to to violence. And this this person became a well-respected elected official. Um, and virtually nobody blinked an eye. I mean, I can't remember anybody, you know, marching with torches and pitchforks and, and all the rest of it. She was very much accepted um, within our society. And I think New Zealand's done incredibly well with being really inclusive because we're small. Yeah. Um, and, and, and this was nearly 30 years ago in the 90s. It was, yeah, was it in the 90s? Uh, or I, I 20, 20, 20 years ago. 20 years ago, yeah. 20, 25, yeah, around that time. Yeah. So, uh, and she was an amazingly open and, and gracious person. Yeah. And, you know, and she fought for everything she she got. And that's how you get equality is you, you fight for it. You know, if you're going to be a whining little bitch, nobody's going to respect you and you're certainly not going to be equal. I, I know. And this was, Georgina was in office till 1999. So that was nearly a quarter of a century ago. Wikipedia entry says Bio was the world's first openly transgender mayor and the first openly transgender member of parliament. And good on her, bloody good on her. <gasps> it's Sadly, Georgina has passed on the 6th of March this year. God bless her soul. Right, yeah. But her life just goes to show we are not nearly as bad as the United Nations would have us think we are that 25 years after having an MP, a mayor, openly transgender, over 100 years after being the first country in the world to give women the right to vote, we now need 60. We now need 60 changes in policies, 60 recommendations yeah. from the United Nations. I think not. And we, and we need a whip behind the ears child like, like um, Shalil, whatever, um, you know, to tell us what to do. We've, we've had some bright, sophisticated people. Yeah, absolutely. So that was Jill and me thrashing out SDG 5, gender equality and its repercussions. Let us know what you think. My number is 2057 or email us at inbox at the rate realitycheck.radio. Bouquets and brickbats all open. We are nothing if not open to cr- critique and criticism. Thank you so much for listening in. And have a great day, whatever you do. Goodbye. Bye. Have a great day. Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. And that was the Greenwashed Reality Check for the week. Thank you so much for joining us. And before I leave you, finally, for good this time, I'm going to leave you with this snippet from... This year's World Economic Forum at Davos. And the speaker here is CNN's Richard Quest, who opened up the discussion on this particular World Economic Forum affiliate session 
on corporate allyship in Davos, where he says we need to be in their faces. A pride flag once a year is not enough, and corporates need to do more. So have a listen. It's it's quite interesting, and it might explain why this push we see in all facets of society, but especially in the corporate sector, on the LGBTQIA++ agenda, is suddenly everywhere. <laughs> Take care. Bye-bye. Getting our faces in their faces is what's crucial. Because this is an environment where we can start the agenda. We can start the talk. Because, let's be blunt, those of us who come here understand the language that they speak. We're not threatening. Well, not always. We can get the access that's necessary. You know, I don't like it. It's not nice to say that that's why, you know, that's our great goal, but by coming to Davos, by having a seat at the table, peripherally or centrally, that can make a difference. I'm going to be brief because we have more important people to hear from. And the first thing I just want to say, this is about allies. So I looked up the definition of allies. Supporters, friends, those who are with you. And then I thought about Ukraine and we talk about allies. Who's the allies of Zelensky? Who's the allies of this? And then I started thinking about the, our agenda, the LGBTQI agenda. Allies. But, and this is where Davos is important. And this is where your discussion today is important. Because we have to push it further than just friends. It's not enough uh, this is the one place where you can say, well, that's very nice, but it's not enough. A pride flag once a year is not enough. HR policies that recognize inclusion is not enough. And for big companies who are well familiar with what we're talking about, and they know exactly what we're talking about, you're now saying, all right, what are you going to do on big political issues? And you just watch the white of their eyes as they head to the door. But if, as seems likely, the leading candidate in the United States for the Republican, uh, well, the battle that'll take place, is somebody who promulgated a don't say gay and then beat up on corporations in the process, it's not enough just to fly a rainbow flag. Why do I care about this particularly? Because you have plenty of experts on this in terms of US domestic. Because when it comes to international, what America does will be the fig leaf that covers for other countries. Well, we're only following America, the great democracy, the mother of etc. I mean, constitution that goes back several hundred years if it's good enough for america it's good enough for my dictatorship and that's how it goes don't make any, i've had it in my face and so that's why next year i would like to see invitations sent to the polish house to neom to the emirati pavilion in fact, I will pay for the flag that you deliver to them 
to display. That's what being an ally is about. Altex Machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now.